0: Okay, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the February 13th, 2021 edition of the Saturday Free School for Philosophy and Black Liberation. I'm joined today by Meghna, Jeremiah, Michelle, Caleb, Emily, and as always by uh, Dr. Anthony Montero. Today's program, uh, we're going to start with a bit of discussion about two recent articles about the network of elites uh non-governmental organizations corporations and labor unions that uh it's now coming out had a coordinated effort to defeat uh donald trump in the presidential election there are two articles uh, both of which i posted in the description of this live stream the first one is from time magazine uh entitled the secret bipartisan campaign that saved the 2020 election and the other one is from rt.com entitled, there was a color revolution in the US after all, and its architects now boast of how they fortified the 2020 election. We'll begin with a short discussion of this before we move on to chapter five of Du Bois's Russia and America. So you give everyone a brief summary of uh, some of the things discussed in these two articles. Uh, essentially, I mean, A lot of what we've been discussing in the free school, I would say, over the past few months is coming more out in the open with names and dollar amounts uh, specified and attached. Essentially, what the articles argue is that during the election, you had this uh, wide coalition, which included people who had been involved in the Black Lives Matter protests over the summer include one of the key coordinators of this was a member of the AFL-CIO senior member named Podhorzer and additionally they worked closely with the chamber of commerce and dissident elements within the republican party and this whole campaign consisted firstly of a coordinated effort of poll workers and getting information out about mail-in ballots And that's what they're talking about when they say saving the election meaning preserving in their words, the integrity of the election or people's belief in the election, that it was fair. But the other point, uh, which is quite interesting, was about a coordinated effort involving millions of dollars to quote battle disinformation on social media. So, in fact, Firstly, this effort was supported by a very large grant from the Zuckerberg Chan Foundation or Zuckerberg Chan Initiative, which is founded by uh, Mark Zuckerberg and his wife. Then several of these uh, folks, including nine what they call civil rights leaders, including one of which uh, named Vanita Gupta is now uh, Associate Attorney General under the Biden administration. They met with Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey and basically convinced them to to suppress disinformation on social media that could affect the outcome of the election. And namely what's hinted at here are things like the Hunter Biden laptop story, which were forcibly suppressed on social media, uh, basically which was a story about the corruption that Hunter Biden had done and the information found on his laptop that that revealed this corruption in Ukraine and China and other places. Um, Also, while these same figures uh, spent a lot of time talking about Russians creating memes on Facebook, Russians spreading targeted articles in different states. They themselves were engaged in the same behavior. They had a very, uh, again, sophisticated apparatus in producing targeted memes, targeted articles, selecting uh, people by demographic, and this all with the full cooperation of Facebook and uh, Twitter. So, and, and another point is that they were involved in advising the traditional media. And if you recall election day, uh, what happened is that although Trump was winning and was leading in a lot of the early states, a lot of the anchors were stressing like, oh, this isn't it, Trump hasn't won today, we have to wait. And that was because they're admitting now they were very much coached on the narrative uh, of what to say about the election results by by this uh, coordinated uh, campaign. Some of the organizations involved in this included what's called the Voter Protection Project um, of course I, I mentioned the AFL CIO and, uh, another group, which is still there called the fight back table. I think few people have heard of any of these names, but again, these, these people have made a serious impact on the election and they're, and they're still there, uh, for what exactly they're doing. I mean, we'll be fighting out. But, uh, again, this is, this is important information to share because it shows how much and how, in, how uh, seriously the elites took this project of ensuring the legitimacy of the election in the eyes of the people and uh, one of the quotes that I found interesting by one of these figures it said that this election although Biden won it's not it doesn't show how strong democracy is or how de- well democracy works he says it shows how vulnerable democracy is which gives you an idea of, of, of what they thought about what was happening so uh, I just want to present that short summary and maybe we can open up to a bit of a, of a discussion on this topic. A number of our other participants today are also have have read this uh, article. So anyone like to start off.
1: Yeah, I can say a few things. Um, one of the I think one of the striking things about the Time magazine article is just how like how brazen it is and just how open they are about admitting like yeah there is a secret cabal of like powerful people and like this alliance between like labor and commerce and big business and silicon valley um, to like the, the words they use is to like to change laws to change perceptions to shape the election and i think part of the question is like how like how is it that uh, you know time could be so basically open about admitting like what actually occurred during the election and i think um at least from my perspective it seems like part of it is just that like it's it is very like almost it is very psychological in the sense that it's like i think you get the feeling that the ruling class is so overconfident in itself and its own ability to Um, basically do whatever it wants and have people basically support it that they're basically almost taunting it seems like the rest of um, America you know like all these people who supported Trump who are like this election is rigged um, and like this election is not fair and have insisted on that increasingly over the past few um, months and to basically taunt them and be like Yeah, basically, we did like basically engineer the election and you can't do anything about it. But then on the other hand, you know, sort of signaling to um, maybe people who yeah supported Biden or um, You know, believe that Trump did pose a serious threat to um, American democracy is to basically be like, look, this is basically like, um, you know, the narrative is that like all these people were working so hard and fighting against like, yeah, disinformation and all these evil actors behind the scenes. And, you know, this is like this valiant noble effort that, you know, like maybe you didn't know about you, but um, this is something that you should be applauding. And basically it's almost, in some ways it feels like to me, like setting up like people to be, um, you know, very almost psychologically primed or ready to, you know, receive or to be basically condone or to accept, accept like even more overt acts of basically suppressing democracy or of controlling society and um, controlling like political process by um, this yeah this like coalition of elites and and so on and so um, yeah I think that's at least like my some of my perspectives on it and yeah like the RT article that was mentioned. Um, yeah, it's going, it does go pretty deep into, yeah, like who are some of the figures involved and um, also like the the dynamic between the Black Lives Matter protests in the summer and then um, basically like this, I feel like even like during, in free school, we talked about like while the election was happening, not being sure if there's gonna be violence, you know, in the streets following the election um, and sort of, yeah, like, I think the way that the RT author um, frames it is that almost that the the BLM protests were kind of a misdirection almost, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, I think it's it's really interesting almost from like an objective perspective, but also just very troubling that um, yeah that that they that basically the ruling class can be so just overt you know and say like this is what we did and admit it and, and how not not. Um, like not even be afraid to admit that. And also it makes you question, like if they're willing to admit this, how much else is happening behind the scenes that we're not privy to? Um, So, yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, on this point about the uh, Black Lives Matter, I mean, we had discussed in free school a number of times about how a lot of aspects of the Black Lives Matter movement resemble color revolution and that the, the timing the, ta- the very disruptive and violent tactics, the lack of connection to the actual organic connection to the black community. And uh, here in these two articles, they also discuss about how how um, how much how linked Black Lives Matter was to this project and was trying to get out the vote for Biden. And then also how some similar tactics were used in the aftermath of the election when Trump was trying to dispute some of the results. For example, uh, the biggest example was in Michigan, they talked, uh, talked about when it came to certifying the votes, tr- uh, Trump had invited the uh, head of the Michigan State Senate and State House of Representatives, who, are, who would be responsible for certifying the votes, to the White House. And they came to the White House and then they went for a drink or something to, uh, I think the Trump Hotel or somewhere in, in Washington. But this whole uh, so-called activist doing direct action associated with this election integrity project They followed them around town, they found out their personal contacts, they flashed like this floodlight thing on the wall of the bar they're at saying like, we are watching you, we know where you are. So it was a high amount of intimidation that they were trying to engage in towards anyone who would challenge, again, all in the name of election integrity and trying to justify by, with a lot of the same ideology of Antifa, like these people are fascists, so anything goes, we can intimidate them, we can follow them home, you know, uh, so so this is something important to unravel which people have to see through I mean, we have to think why was the media so heavily promoting this so-called movement and why was the media narrative in the election the same as this project i mean was it really because they wanted to preserve democracy and integrity or is there something else going on and what does it mean that the so-called left which is the afl-cio of sierra club pretty much every single left of center ngo made an alliance with the chamber of commerce you know who represent the richest people companies in the country with these big tech social media companies i mean this is something serious happening when there's this kind of uh coalition and they're uh focused on one goal which is supposedly preserving the integrity of the election but if you read into it basically it's about defeating Donald Trump and, you know, supposedly saving democracy from Donald Trump. Um, So all of that is something we have to be very clear about.
2: You know, one of the things that I take away from it, i read both articles and I I encourage everybody to read them. Uh, I prefer the RT article because it uh, more clearly summarizes uh, a lot of what's in the Time article, but um, it was to take the electoral process out of the hands of the people and to make it uh, unaccessible to voters. And you get the sense that this cabal, and that's what it was, uh, only connected to the ruling class and the richest, uh, really most powerful and state connected elements in the ruling class, um, that this is one of the most undemocratic uh, uh, cabals that perhaps we've ever seen in an election. and just because the election is over, that doesn't mean they've gone away. And like uh, Jeremiah said, if they say this, how much are they not telling us about? You know, Um, and so we are right. Democracy did not win, the ruling class and the most powerful parts of the ruling class won. And we cannot be unmindful of the fact that the so-called revolutionary and socialist left were directly and indirectly a part of this cabal, which by the way, it's not in the article, but included all of the major forces operating in the security state, the CIA, national intelligence, the FBI, and the Pentagon and the way the Pentagon and the military elite leadership came into it was uh, through retired four-star generals writing these articles in the Atlantic during the late summer uh, months of 2020. Uh, You know, the RT article says this was a color revolution. And I agree with that, and I kind of came to that conclusion uh, by you know over the summer I was um, uh, looking at a lot of documentaries about Ukraine and the color revolution, the violent uh, fascist-led color revolution, U.S. sponsored color revolution that overthrew in twenty. 20- 14, I think 2014, yes, the legitimately elected government of the Ukraine. And then I'm thinking, and I say, wait a minute, this Black Lives Matter and all of this other stuff going on is more like the Ukraine and Hong Kong and Libya and and other color revolutions than it is like the US civil rights movement. I said this Black Lives Matter has no organic uh, roots with the masses of working people who are suffering in this time of COVID. How do you, this is the petty bourgeoisie who are always the target to be mobilized in a color revolution. It was not It was not a civil rights movement. And no one to this day can tell you who the leaders leadership was and what they're connected to. Um, and I like to just say one thing, you know, as they set it up and the, the Time Magazine article says it, Pothoris, who is the son of this neocon named Pothoris, I forget his first name, but Pot, a neocon, a war maker. And of course, this, the AFL-CIO has always been connected through pro-Zionist, pro-war, neocon elements to war. The AFL-CIO, this is the problem, of course. We can get into that later. But they, Pat Horace said, had Trump won, they were ready to mobilize, quote, Black Lives Matter to take to the streets throughout this country, which suggests the following, that all of those marches and demonstrations were really pretty much a dress rehearsal for after the election. And if you think January 6th was something, if Trump had won, the cities would have burned without Mm -hmm. question. They would have been shut down and this is the final part of this piece, to separate race from class Mm -hmm. and to argue that any and everybody that voted for Trump, overwhelmingly white, of course, 75 million people, are racist. And everybody that voted for Biden is anti-racist, including Biden was responsible for locking up more Black people than any senator or elected official maybe in the history of the country. We're talking about the Crime Bill of 1994. His name, his footprint is all over that. So now he's the anti-racist? No. The race question is used to stabilize the regime. And to misguide Black people away from who are their objective natural allies, white working people, Latino working people, whose conditions are more similar than they are uh, uh, dissimilar. Just one last thing. You know, over the summer, we talked about, we read, and we wrote about. Ibram Kendi's book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. You know, I characterized it then as a very unremarkable book uh, that uh, uh, for many reasons, the book uh, was so different than any of the scholarship and the thousands and tens of thousands of books and essays and speeches on racism and white supremacy never had a scholar who writes on racism and anti-racism made the extraordinary claim that Black folk without power could themselves be white supremacists. That no one had ever said that. It was uh, breathtaking to read someone who would say such a thing and to find this book on the New York Times bestseller list. And it's still up there. But what is new is that on February 3rd or something like that, a new book by Kendi is published. And he it's an edited volume. He and another Black woman scholar put it together. And it has small essays on various aspects of historic racism. And the lead article or essay is by the woman who got the Pulitzer prize for journalism um, uh, for the 1619 project, which a whole number of scholars have shown is absolutely wrong. And without going into that now, you know, but nonetheless, And it was so wrong that the New York Times had to revise it. And as you're probably noticing, and I forget the young woman's name, she's been withdrawn from public discourse. You haven't heard a thing about, well, you haven't heard much about Black Lives Matter since a month before the election. Very interesting, of course, the timing. But um, this book published maybe two weeks ago, almost a week after its publishing is number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Do any of you know about the book? I don't think so. So if you don't know, and you you guys are readers and thinkers and you try to keep up with things, what about the mass of readers? The mass, How does a book get on the New York Times bestseller list without selling a copy? Of it. I mean, we're looking at a rigged system, but I, I want to just end it. This idea of the ruling class controlling the entire ideological sphere. There's a concept known as the noose sphere, N O U uh, S. It's a Greek word, meaning the intellectual sphere must be completely dominated. Thought must be shut down. Thought is impermissible. Reading Du Bois as we are doing and drawing conclusions about ideas, epistemology, the path forward, could be considered a transgressive act bordering on a crime, cancel culture, identity politics, the fake uh, anti-capitalism under the slogan, and it's nothing but a slogan, uh, racial capitalism. You know, it's like intersectionality. Let's add more racial, uh, homophobic, misogynist, transphobic, capitalism right and who fights against this system it is the woke elites not the working people because they are all of those things to one degree or another it is a fake anti-capitalism it isn't it is pro-capitalism in the name of racial capitalism you know uh it is a capitalism that does not understand or wishes to obscure the control of the economy and the society by a few banks and huge corporations like Amazon, like, you know, we can go on, you know what I'm saying, or the concept of colonial capitalism, you know, colonial regime, which then says all white people, especially white workers, are beneficiaries of the system of settler colonialism. They are settlers, not workers. And therefore there is an inevitable clash between the colonially oppressed, i.e. black people and the settlers. Well, what you're telling me, in effect, that there is no path to victory. There is no path to unity. White people are almost DNA, by their DNA, predisposed to white supremacy. The good white people are the elites, the academics, the, uh, the, the Joe Dorseys. The founders of social media corporations, the fight for ideological clarity in the light of all that we learn from these two essays. It it almost made me want to take a victory lap, you know, because that's what we've been saying for a year. The anti Trump movement is not a quote anti-Trump movement as much as it is an anti-working class movement. To divide the working class, to not fight for unity of the working class, to make other claims. They are attacking those 75 million people. Trump could disappear tomorrow, but those 75 million people are still there, are still angry, and their numbers, I will predict, are going to increase because the crisis not of racial capitalism, but of state monopoly capitalism of imperialism will only intensify and out of this clash, a real organically anchored working class movement can emerge, not inevitable but can emerge. And the fight for ideas is uppermost at this time.
3: Yeah, Doc, you had said um, the separation of race from class uh, is, is, the, is just the primary ideological weapon, but also the struggle, on that same note, the struggle of the struggle for uh, racial justice and civil rights from the struggle against imperialism. I mean, they've just completely severed that link so that you have these NGOs. And I like what you were saying about, I mean, I just, it connected these dots about how undemocratic NGOs are because basically you have these philanthropists paying people, you know, like like in a gentrifying city, decent wages, you know, to go and organize. And it's just a way of like, and it's supposed to be their claim. Oh, we're going, we're knocking on doors. We're doing one-on-ones. But it's really just a way of um, uh, seeding the ruling class's ideology into people who don't want it and don't need it because they have their own institutions. Mm -hmm. And just the role of gentrification in what happened in Philadelphia um, was mentioned in the article, you know, activists dancing in the streets, blasted Mm -hmm. Beyonce over a Trump press conference. The people of Philadelphia own the streets of Philadelphia, crows a Working Families Party Mitchell. If you see that video, there were like no black people there. It was all white gentrifiers at that party celebrating the defeat of Trump. And just this um, trying to replace Philadelphia's political history with um, these transplants um, and calling it racial capitalism. It's just really insidious and disgusting. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's a movement of the elite and a movement of wealth Masquerading as a movement for
2: justice, it's what we call a revolution from above. Right, Mm right, right. It's always from above. You cannot point to anything from below. And you know, I'm from Philadelphia. I've been marching against police brutality since I could march. You know, since I could think, since I could open my mouth. Practically, when has there been an anti-police brutality movement? In Philadelphia, you can, people from Chicago can talk about those places where the overwhelming majority are non-black people and have college degrees. You know, when has that been the case? Never, it already suggests that there's something wrong with this configuration that should concern everybody. And the fact that all of this was organized In a time of a shutdown because of coronavirus, and it was done over the internet. And and you know, Maidna, you might remember us discussing this. You know, the places where social media is most prolific and used most are the places from which most of the marchers came, Mm -hmm. I would suggest. And more than that, that within a city like this, you have a hub where the universities are, where the banks are, where the museums, where the downtown is. And then you have a hinterland. Mm-hmm. And the, the hinterland are places like North Upper North Philadelphia, the ungentrified parts of North Philadelphia, uh, West Oak Lane, Lower Germantown. Southwest Philadelphia, outside of the range of University of Pennsylvania, Port Richmond, and don't mention Kensington. What's going on over there? Stranded populations, people who have no roots to any social or or institutional life, stranded. You can say homelessness if you want it. They're basically stranded populations. They are not included in what these people talk about when they talk about Philadelphia. Philadelphia is the University of Pennsylvania, is Comcast, is downtown. You know what I'm saying? Is Temple University, is Drexel. That's what they call Philadelphia. The rest of us have been erased and are impoverished, hungry, and and desperate.
0: Yeah, in in many ways, it's an attack on the last remnants of political power of the working class. Agree with you. Yes. They move them, move them out of their neighborhoods, disperse yes. them, make them also economically so impoverished that they are not able to organize themselves or, uh, you know, challenge the system in that kind of way, which they may have been able to do before. And also uh, on this point about hub cities i think that's a very important uh insight and also the managerial class associated with it which is in some ways an updated petty bourgeoisie because and that's what you that's what's very important to understand because they try to virtue signal and show that they're woke like we're saying they're woke they support black lives matter they're pro-lgbt and say muslims are my neighbors whatever all that type of stuff that you know But then when you get to the substance of it, it's, you know, I'm anti working class, I'm pro gentrification, I'm, uh, you know, I'm pro war pro imperialism pro big tech, all those things. And, uh, you know, that that's become the politics of the petty bourgeoisie, which is and it's very much again connected to the politics of the elite. And that's basically what the Democratic Party has become. It's just that they have been somewhat successful in using identity politics to to keep a big chunk of their uh, non-white working class voters. Still, that's the only thing, their only kind of reason that they still have a foothold. Otherwise, in terms of their money, in terms of increasingly of the direction in terms of who's voting for them, it's still these managerial class and the elite. And even if you look at articles about what's happening in places like California, I mean, it's basically ruled by this kind of managerial elite. It's like, you can have marijuana, you can have this, you can have that gay marriage, all this stuff, speak Spanish. Mm
4: -hmm. But
0: when it comes to the working class, it's you're impoverished, you're homeless. We don't care about you. Fill fill you up in our jails, make you do forced labor for renewable energy, (laughs) you know, Um, green new deal and all that stuff. So, that's very important to keep in mind. And uh, again, as Doc was saying, this uh, ideology, these authors and these books and these different projects which are associated with it, I mean, they have a very insidious goal. Abram Kendi, okay. Isabel Wilkerson, mm-hmm. uh, Nicole Hannah-Jones, mm-hmm. which had that huge 1619 project, which, which then she was the editor of it and she brought in tons of people. There were tons of articles. I think there was a whole New York Times magazine issue mm-hmm. and won the Pulitzer Prize and all that stuff. All of it is pushing this ideology of this of the woke elites and this woke managerial class, and trying to scare the working class with uh, these boogeymen of fascism and uh, promising a fake anti-racism, and uh, as you, as we were saying, dividing the working class, keeping the working class scared of each other, and uh, maintaining their form of rule, but. I mean the good news for us is that there is a crisis of the ruling class, and we do see mass resistance, yeah. whether in the form of this populist you know Trump movement or other forms, there's definitely they're, uh, they're feeling a serious threat. I mean that's why they still ha- still are occupying the capital. We can't forget that there's still twenty five thousand plus troops in washington d c which if it wasn't any other capital, we would say this is the capital of a banana republic, but mm-hmm. you know. Um, that's the situation we're finding ourselves in.
2: Yeah, yeah. And, and we have to face up to it. You know, we're in what increasingly looks like a civil war, mm-hmm. where the ruling elites have declared war on everyone that they see as an enemy. Uh, and applying the war against terrorism, which was allegedly against uh, Muslim extremists, They're applying those same ideas and same methods to the American people, especially the working class. Uh, This, and and again, the control of the ideological sphere, the complete control of it. uh, And the universities are complicit in this. The publishing houses are complicit in this. All of the mechanisms of ideas and ideological struggle and debate. There is no more debate. You'll be canceled, you see? And this is the left, or we could call it the cultural left, if you will. Mm -hmm. And then to divert everything away from the economic conditions and social conditions of working people and make it look like the most important issue is the issue of, uh, of, of trans uh, marriage or trans questions. I would like to just you know kind of um, go back to the fact that the ruling class must establish its quote moral authority. So it claims to be anti-racist, but it also claims to be concerned about the climate. Mm -hmm. And remember, the free school, we went through a long uh, set of discussions. We were using Cory Morningstar's book, The Invention or the Manufacturing of Greta Thunberg. And she makes some very powerful claims about the Green New Deal and the almost $100 trillion to reset existing capitalism. Uh, And of course, Klaus Strauss said that what we couldn't achieve in scaring the people to death with the collapse of the climate uh, will do with the coronavirus. Mm -hmm. And we cannot let, as he put it, any crisis go to waste. Because the ultimate uh, thing is the reset, the reorganization, the reconfiguration of, Capitalism, and when we say world capitalism, what we're really talking about is the centers of European civilization. The United States and North America, Europe, and places like Australia and New Zealand. And of course, this bringing forth of a elite, which quote, to use Biden's word, looks like America. Mm. And these. <laughs> these black faces in high places, which are modeled upon Obama, you're black, but you do the same things that any white elite would do. And of course you paid handsomely, but I think we cannot close our eyes to the push of the green quote, green new deal, which is just another way of talking about the capitalist reset and the fourth industrial revolution, which could be a descent into hell for tens of millions of working people. And thus it is the threat to their lives that is producing this deep anxiety, fear and really anger among working people.
0: Right. I mean, h- hence the attack on
2: working people and the yes. attempt to divide and uh, oh, yes, oh, yes. stoke divisions. And that's and, right. And the only salvation for the working people is unity. Now, you're not going to get 100% unity. You understand? And there are all kinds of ideological trends within the working class, especially a working class, Black, white, and Latino, and Asian, without a left leadership. Mm-hmm. Sadly. So, you're going to get all kinds of movements and ideologies, but the working class must learn from its own experience. This is not anything a textbook can teach them, or even a good essay or or us talking. You know what I'm saying? They're going to have, it's going to be a bitter school of, of struggle for working people.
4: Yeah, we,
0: well, as Du Bois said about Russia, when I mean, we are entering a period where there'll be a lot of experiments. Yeah, experiments. we to experiment and try different things. Well, oh, yeah. you know. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, also with this, uh, you can see the attacks on all, any of the progressive traditions of the working class. We've spent a lot of time, obviously, defending King and Du Bois and why that's yes. an important tradition. Yeah. But even like with the 1619 project, the attack on any rem- semblance of a progressive tradition among whites, because the 1619 is an attack on 1776. Absolutely. The American Revolution was a racist revolution. So, you know, uh, it was driven by racism. Hence, there, it's impossible for white workers to ever engage in any kind of progressive struggle. Um, and so, you may see people invoking all of those things in in, in defiance. And uh, I mean, again, why what we're doing has a lot of value. Mm-hmm. I mean, and because if Ibrahim Kendi's book can come out and uh, in two weeks and reach the bestsellers list and Du Bois's, which was written over 60 years ago still hasn't been published. I mean, what does that tell you?
3: <laughs> oh yeah, I, were yeah. you saying that um, in uh, Du Bois's first visit or invited visit to China was for a conference on Ben Franklin, and uh, yeah, and he wrote very interestingly <laughs> yeah, on yeah. the life of Ben Franklin. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I'm, I've d- i definitely dismissed Ben Franklin as probably a racist apologist, but it seems that he or you were telling me he became. Yeah, uh, yeah, Du
0: Bois wrote like a he went to China, People's Republic of China, for a conference on Ben Franklin's uh, birthday. And also he wrote a hundred page pamphlet on ben franklin for the world peace council which is available online actually alice is the one who who brought all this to my attention well, but uh, i was looking at it it was quite interesting because he was like ben franklin which who today is cancelled obviously you know by the modern left you know but he was like ben franklin was a man in the truest sense of the word like he was self-taught self-educated he grew from being someone who initially wanted to reform the British Empire to an opponent of the British Empire who fought against it and defeated it. He grew from someone who had been involved in the slave trade owning slaves at least to an out to an outspoken opponent of slavery and an abolitionist and he represented the best of the European revolutions of the 17th and 18th <laughs> century. Basically that's what he said. It's worth reading the whole thing but that's you yeah,
3: know. Yeah
0: yeah um, and I was like, very interesting is Du Bois. And I think we get that in Russia and America. He could, he really took seriously the progressive traditions in the West and particularly among white Americans. And he could see that there are limitations and there are things which need to be completed, but he didn't, but that's very different from this argument that though that they're entirely reactionary. And even, even like with these protests now, like you see people bringing out don't tread on me you see people invoking 1776 the struggle against a tyrannical power a tyrannical regime Mm -hmm. um and i think that's something that's uh, significant that's not in and of itself something that's racist Mm -hmm. or white supreme when it's targeted at the white elites you know um
3: yeah and that's also the politics of peace always drawing like reaching out a hand drawing upon whatever tradition you know like you were saying doc not seeing things as static seeing mm-hmm. things for all their possibilities always always holding out that hope and yeah. um, today's politics is the opposite you want to say that people are nothing they're this they're that they're just mm-hmm. unrepentantly you know um yeah I mean people are just it's just this endless nihilism um yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
5: yeah I've also been thinking about the protests of 2020 and Especially the way that they manifested in Philadelphia, where everything felt like it was extremified, you know, like the pandemic really affected the working class of Philadelphia, you saw the tragedy, the poverty, the toil, the unemployment, how it affected so many people in the black community. Um, At the same time, you also saw this huge swell of progressives and how many people were on the streets, just hundreds and hundreds of protests organized by so many organizations throughout the year. Um, yeah, and it also made me think a lot about this, this thing with, um, yeah, I mean, it actually made me think about the difference between being a reactionary and a revolutionary, which is something that we've talked about a lot. But whereas the past year with the free school, you know, like there's been a very generative sense to what we're doing, where we are trying to draw the positive threads from what's happening. Like, yes. Um, the country is in shambles right now, but then also there are positive threads to be drawn out from the splintering of the ruling class. It's always, it's it's exactly what you said, Magna, like seeing what is possible. But yeah, I've actually been kind of emotional lately because it's it's like looking out at the city and all of the different left forces in it. How come they can't see that same thing? And
6: mm-hmm.
5: at the end of the day, I think so much of it is being caught in this cycle still of reaction where yeah, it's like media says Black Lives Matter and then everyone says Black Lives Matter, but people completely incapable of critical thought and being able to assess what is really happening. And yeah, something that we talked about in the summer that I still have been thinking about is like the murder of Walter Wallace Jr. and then Walter Wallace senior like calling for peace and he said it multiple times. Like he said it when he was interviewed on the news, but then he also said it at a community gathering and I was thinking about how George Floyd, Floyd's brother after he was murdered said the same thing. He was calling for peace. He was saying, no, you know, like we need to preserve the community. We need to restore the community. This isn't what we want. We don't, you know, you should evaluate violence carefully. And it's even just things like that, you know, I guess you see the ideological poverty of the landscape when young people who claim they want to change the world can't even see something so stark and fundamental as that. And yeah, I think I think once again, you know, people just aren't looking at what's really happening and what's really changing in society right now. Like people people are misdirected. I think like Jeremiah, you brought up from the RT article. Um, yeah, it's, it's a lot to make sense of, but at the end of the day, I'm glad we have something positive that we're drawing from this.
6: Something, I think the thing um, that stood out to me also from the article that relates to what Michelle just said about sort of these, the messages that are genuinely from working people in the city versus the messages that all these NGOs, um, basically this like alliance of the left with big businesses putting out around Black Lives Matter, defund the police, whatnot. Um, The thing that stood out from the Time article was This basically how sophisticated of a propaganda system this consensus had. You know, they talked a lot about this thing called messaging docs, where you know if you have a constellation of nonprofit groups, labor, um, big business, whatnot, you can just send out a messaging doc saying like, okay, we're pivoting messaging. Like, there's no clear, there's no clear actual ideas. What they're doing is simply just putting out messaging that somehow becomes the slogans of the mass movement and how different that is from what an actual movement is of people, where it's coming from ideas and organic slogans, things like Michelle was mentioning about peace, about poverty, about employment. And I think that's also why it was so angering to read about, we know that there's millions, hundreds of millions of dollars, billions put into the election. And it's basically purely to, all this money is just put in, first of all, The story that you told Jahan of how all these activists were ready to follow around Trump meeting that Senate official. Um, There was that one snippet of the article saying that the left had a pocket full of activists ready at the airports in the middle of the pandemic, ready to just choose the next flight as long as they got a phone call about it. You know, they had the money, people were just ready to do it. Like That's CIA, FBI type of behavior. You know and this is coming from the left but the fact that billions of dollars is put into this election simply to convince the left or working people to vote you know all these volunteers all this labor all this money all these ads is just committed to trying to beg people to vote you know vote for biden vote to take down trump all of that all this messaging is put out and it's so manufactured and unnatural and i think it's funny when we compare it to russian america which we've been reading where Du Bois meticulously talks about how demo- how in Russia, actually in the Soviet Union, you have possibly the purest form of democracy, starting with the Soviet, even the unions, it's so democratic, there's so much thought, people are talking participating. Um, and so I think it's just so ironic, especially since, I mean, a few weeks ago, we were also reading about Germany, Hitler, what, what is the definition of fascism? Um, and we talked about how actually here in the US, it's not really Trump who's a fascist, but actually, if you look at what really defined fascism in Germany, it's very similar to what's happening in the US, which is article exposed. You know, this propaganda machine, so sophisticated, can pivot its messaging so quickly. You have a whole, whole constellation of well funded, both well funded, private funded um, operations of people, volunteers um people connected to the state ready to ready to fortify democracy or the democratic process um and so i don't know i was just it's just really the amount of money that's even just put into the elections convincing and begging and pleading people to vote in what's supposed to be the bastion of democracy in the world is so ironic but it's also just really it makes you angry because the slogans of the people is about poverty, mostly peace and poverty, you know, wanting to alleviate poverty. There's so much unemployment right now. Um, and that's not a slogan at all, of any of these so-called mass movements today.
4: Yeah, that's something I noticed too. I mean, reading through both articles, just the amount of, because it feels like the Democrats almost are a one-party state, like all these different like organizers popping up, like different voting groups. Like every like I was, I was, I was reading through the article, just new groups popping up out of nowhere and being well funded too, and not even being two years old, but still like having so much influence and sway over an election, too. And I mean, it just made me think more about like just this dissonance about like why are there so many organizations that can receive so much funding, focused on voting, focused on like this supported social justice of you know fortifying the election. But then also, I don't know, there's just like a deep contradiction that I've been thinking more about where, like when Biden won, like so many people went onto the streets to celebrate, like they were excited, you know, Trump was out, Biden was in, um, progressivism had won. But then mm-hmm. like in Philadelphia, you see homelessness still rising, poverty just increasing, unemployment increasing and like, I mean, where are all the organizations for something like poverty alleviation? Like where are all the organizations focused on homelessness? And I don't know, just like this deep contradiction between something about, you know, preserving the integrity of this election, but also not really like turning to the masses of people and their own struggles.
2: Just one small thing we haven't mentioned yet. In the Time Magazine article, they pay this group headed, I mean, kind of, they say it was headed by Pat Horetz, focused heavily upon mail-in voting. And you might recall that uh, by the time of the actual voting, I mean, in-person voting, a hundred million people had voted either early or by mail of that 100 million people, 65 million had voted by mail in a country and in states where this had never happened before. So there was no real experience in managing that. But as you remember, the Democrats through uh, it seems like seducing election officials in various states said, well, the pandemic makes uh, uh, mail in voting necessary. Now we're in a situation where it looks like mail in voting will be the main form of voting, in spite of the fact that no one knows how to protect the vote, uh, etc. Uh, I think this is very important uh, by the way and I, I agree I think it um, was you care what this said we're looking at more or less a one-party state I mean and an absolute one-party state not one party with two wings a real uh, uh, how would I, um, the dictatorship, a dictatorship of the most wealthy and powerful elements of the American ruling class. We must underline this and anyone left, right or center that finds that something that they wanna celebrate, if that's what you call democracy, then we have a real discussion we need to have. And I think what we're doing is um, uh, uh, pulling off the, the, the various layers of an onion until we get to the essence of this. You know, and for me personally, I am not interested in this superficial uh, discourse. That, is, that people carry out on social media to make themselves popular. The idea of being popular and liked on social media. If that's your project, then that's a project that you, anybody that you should be a part of if that's the way you roll. But let's keep it real. That's not revolutionary politics. That's not radical politics. That's not the struggle for democracy and peace. It has no. you are doing something to draw attention to yourself. And that's what this performative left, uh, this boot tap dancing, uh, comedic almost left. And this is what insults the intelligence and the integrity, of the genuine, the real left. This is, and we have to take it that way. This is, this is not a uh, a happy moment. And anyone that sees this Biden, when you read that Time article, I don't see how you can conclude that this election was a victory for democratic and progressive forces. I don't see how you can. if you read that article, now you, want, you might wanna say that article was inaccurate, it was exaggerated, whatever you wanna say, but I don't think so. A cabal is in command of the state in ways that we have never seen before.
0: Uh, just looking at some of the figures also that Emily mentioned, actually, uh, the total cost of the 2020 elections, if you also include the presidential race, plus all the congressional races and state races, the estimate is between 11 to $14 billion, with a B, billion dollars. Mm-hmm. And in the same, the same year, 2020, according to a recent study by Notre Dame University, the U.S. experienced uh, high, the sharpest increase in poverty uh, since the 1960s. The overall poverty rate went up by 2.4% and for black folk by 5.4% uh, in, within one year. And uh, so, I mean, it's really staggering that contrast of you're spending billions of dollars supposedly for democracy, which basically means putting in the, uh, you know, politicians who are funded by the elite And then you're letting the masses of people slip further and further into poverty and immiseration. And you have to ask the question, is this the type of state which we want, Is the type of state or type of democracy which the American uh, masses deserve? And uh, I mean, you can see an incredible contrast between that and what we were were talking before the live stream about China and the historic achievements and ending uh, extreme poverty You can see an extreme contrast with what Du Bois talks about in Russia and America about the Soviet state. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, I think even with the ideals of previously that were held by people in the United States. I mean, certainly of the civil rights movement, King and of Du Bois. I mean, there's this extreme contrast to this kind of state and its uh, functioning.
2: Right. It is the opposite of what Du Bois talked about, what he saw in the Soviet Union where the people were increasingly encouraged through civil society and trade union and and the multiplicity of grassroots organizations. People were encouraged to become a part of discussion, of debate, of organizing in in their workplaces, in their communities, on their collective farm. This is the complete opposite to that. This is the negation of power to the people. Mm -hmm. This is the misleading of the people. The people are not even presented with the issues. Everything is propaganda for the small elite. And that's what it is. We have come closer to a authoritarian dictatorship of the most wealthy, powerful elements in this society or that this society has ever seen. Nothing like it has ever occurred. And of course, this looks more like fascism than Donald Trump's weak presidency. This cabal is more like a fascist movement from above, than than Donald Trump's movement. And I look forward to being canceled by those who think that's a a way out statement. Well, cancel me. And if you tell me who you are, I'll cancel you first. But to say that is almost a crime in the left. Mm
0: -hmm. We are living in an era of thought crimes
2: yeah 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 yeah
0: orwell couldn't have imagined
2: no no he could not Mm-mm. It's kind of
0: technocracy Mm-mm.
2: Mm-mm. no he could not have
1: well one thing that it reminds me of um i think it's in color and democracy where Du Bois makes the the point that the opposite of democracy or like the negation of democracy is imperialism and poverty. And he says that is the greatest thing to be struggled against. And that is the true opposite of democracy, rather than even this whole thing about authoritarianism and whatnot. And so, yeah, I mean, like, what would it look like if all of that money or all of that energy and effort was expended toward um, yeah, eradicating poverty, rather than basically trying to um, engineer an election?
2: That's right and manage the masses, it's not to free the masses, it's to manage them, to control their thinking. And and, you know, once people cannot think freely, they cannot be free. Um, I don't think people are adequately aware of the dangers that we face. And of course, people, if they understood what fascism historically was and i think we way beyond that they would see the connection between this management and control of the people and war itself mm-hmm. and of course you know all of this anti china anti russia rhetoric you know the united states you know meddling in China's internal affairs, including Taiwan, which is an internal matter of China's, you know, um, I mean, this is, um, yeah, you 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 see you see the the equation, the geography of all of this, and the dangers. That are presented because the United States is not the only country in the world. Thank God. And, um, you know, people, nations are rethinking alliances and how the 21st century going forward will look and what they in their countries can do. Uh, So, is the United States prepared to wage war with the world? Let's ask the question. By the way, I would would encourage people if you get an opportunity to read Putin's speech at the last um, uh, Davos meeting in uh, January, where he uh, attacks the neoliberal world order. As a form of dictatorship. Well,
0: and yeah, maybe that's something we could we could read one of the upcoming free schools might be worthwhile. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Again, to break through this uh, American exceptionalism. Oh yeah. Find out what's actually and also the media, which isn't going to cover any of this. Uh, it's a big task, and uh, I mean, as a, it's an interesting thing that waging war on the world is often connected to waging war on the American population.
2: (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Uh,
0: Either physically or ideologically or or both.
2: I agree with you. I agree with you.
0: Yeah, Uh, did we have some comments? Uh, Don DeBar writes, until the matter of control of the resources properly settled, when the discussion leaves this and moves to other questions of sociology, you're being distracted. Uh, Jerome had earlier written, I think, about this point about Ibram Kendi. Yo, Doc, in response to the bestseller list, there's a video on Netflix about how people become famous by purchasing friends or likes on the internet. It's <laughs> impossible. We certainly know that he's good friends with big tech and you know, oh, big well. donors of his.
2: Yeah.
0: But, yeah.
2: Oh yeah, and that's you know again. I I just say to Jerome. Um, this is unlike anything we've ever seen. This is the opposite of what they would call a meritocracy uh, that books become uh, important because they are reviewed by peers and other people and their ideas are, are can conc- people conclude that these ideas have significance and credibility. Uh, it's not uh, Joe Dorsey of Twitter giving you $10 million uh, or the elite deciding that this is our guy and this is, this is the discourse we want. Um, I wanna know where the peers are, where are the peer reviews, where the critical uh, investigations uh, of these ideas. What, what is happening? to the so-called intelligentsia and the academics and the scholars, oh, they're doing other things. They don't have time for this, which is their way of saying they don't have time for the people. And that's what they are saying. And how do you allow a second rate scholar, third rate even to get off with this type of uh, thing? This has never happened, I don't think, you know, took Einstein, I said this before, Einstein had to go through 10 years of peer reviewing before his theory of relativity began to be accepted in the scientific community, you know? I mean, how do you just leap over critical peer reviewing of ideas and you become the man? No, somebody else, has invented you. Mm. You are an invention of a ruling class desperate to hold on to power and to divide the masses. You know, it's just like um, the scientists, the nuclear physicists, and I don't mean nuclear weapons, nuclear meaning subatomic physics. Um, he just came out with an article. He discovered um, the um, Hey, uh, Higgs Higgs boson,
3: Higgs boson yeah hey,
2: yeah boson particle you know the first discovery of a new subatomic particle well, he did it back in the 70s but this guy said if if he tried to keep a job in a physics department anywhere in England and I guess we could say the United States now this is a guy that discovered this is not small uh a particle that Determines the orbits of other particles in an atom, you know, something that has not occurred in 70 years. And this guy said he could not get or keep a job in a university because he would be viewed as not productive enough. And You know, and, and, you know, anybody that's been around academics knows what that game is. And something, if you don't mind me just saying this, something that um, sociologists of knowledge discovered some years ago is that even the peer review process is corrupt. Because you'll get all of these journals that are alleged to be peer reviewed and they exist for the most corrupt elements of science and social science and literature to publish in these so-called peer-reviewed journals, which are not really peer-reviewed, publish articles that not more than five people read, and then to use this as part of your record when you argue to get tenure or promotion. It is a completely rigged and corrupt system. And this man, this scientist who discovered this particle and then got, a, new, uh, got a, uh, a Nobel prize for it about 25 years later, he said he couldn't get a job today. He couldn't keep a job because they would claim he's not productive enough. But productivity, is more than not associated with superficiality and corruption. Right. Please forgive me for talking too much, Jones. So
0: another sorry. comment from Don Dubar. he says, uh, merit in quotes here is measured by its utility to the maintenance of the status quo, which-
2: Absolutely, is there's no question about it. There is no question about it. And people have a legitimate right to question the legitimacy of science mm-hmm. yeah. and of the scientists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And yeah, of course you're seeing um, on social media, the, the banning of people who question so-called science, particularly Absolutely. as it relates to COVID-19. There
2: is no question about it.
0: There's an extreme lack of uh, open discussion on,
2: on that issue. And see, this is what we call building consensus from above. Mm-hmm. It's not the organic interaction of scientists and others that arrive at a collective determination. And all all determinations of this type are provisional. They're not absolute because the process goes forward, goes on endlessly. But then to shut down and say, this is the truth, this is the consensus, and if you don't accept it, you gonna go hungry because we're not gonna give you a job.
3: Mm. Right,
0: right, right. Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of breaking the consensus, maybe we, as promised, shall we transition to the beginning of the reading of Russia and America.
2: Michelle, shut up, wake up everybody I
5: don't know I'm just getting
2: it ready oh, f- oh sorry <laughs>
0: well just to, just to preview a little bit I mean I think this uh, chapter is very relevant because it begins with uh, Du Bois again getting into the autobiographical and talking about intellectually and like socially in terms of life experience what's led him to the point where he's looking at comparing the US and Russia, I I think it's quite interesting because it talks about the color lines, getting to a lot of these questions, the color line, the American masses. And then ultimately, we'll end where he starts to talk about the rise of Franklin Roosevelt and what that represented as a political phenomenon. And I think it's very interesting to compare it to what's happened with what we've been talking about today with populism.
5: Yeah, I'm looking forward to uh I'll start sharing my screen like we've been doing the past few weeks and I'm going to start reading from page 151. We're starting on 151 today, correct?
0: That's right. Yeah, that's the first page of uh, first page of chapter 5. That should be
5: Oh, okay, 152, cool. Okay, chapter five, The Reign of Roosevelt. I am an American. My forefathers have been Americans for 300 years and most of them have served America honestly and unstintingly. All of us have lived our lives in this land, mostly in New England and New York, often in the West and South. We have not greatly prospered. None have been rich, but few have been paupers. Few have attained exceptional eminence. Assembling the 16 of my great grandparents so as to avoid recent race mixture, it would appear from what I can learn that nine of them were Black Africans and seven European whites. Of these whites, two were French, two others of Latin American descent, one Dutch, and one may have been a New England Puritan, although I trust not. Of these white folk, I know little. Two were Huguenots, probably honest artisans fleeing from persecution and poverty. Another was a stodgy farmer of the New World Dutch. A third was possibly a commercial trader. Of the others, I know nothing. The mulatto Boises were eminently respectable folk. I remember my grave gray unsmiling grandfather as one who rather overdid the respectability line <laughs> and caused revolt in my handsome, gay and irresponsible father. My calm and even-tempered mother helped to balance the brood. She was of the Black carts, who were different, loud and lusty, drinkers of hard cider and whiskey and never avoiding a good fight. All these forebears served as farmers, laborers, servants and soldiers, their country and their gods, To describe my feelings for the United States as love would not be English. My love was always for folk of dark skin to whom I gave my complete loyalty. France for years I've theoretically loved, not for her blamelessness, but because in a half century of visiting her soil, I have always met sympathy and courtesy without suing for it. Despite finer souls, some of whom I have known, I have always disliked the English for their intolerable assumptions of superiority to everybody, their snobbery and cold hypocrisy. I can not forget their contribution to the slave trade and slavery of my folk. With 19th century Germany, I felt a kinship second only to that which bound me to Negroes. In part, this was the accident of being in my critical young manhood, thrown in close contact with the best of pre-war Germany and thus having revealed to me a white folk different to any I had ever before met. On the other hand, America has always to my mind been associated with repression if not insult. Not that all or even most of my American context and experiences involved such treatment. I have had many close and dear white friends, once four little congregational churches in Connecticut for three years furnished me a scholarship of $100 a year while I was in college. I have usually lived a normal American life without hunger, with adequate clothes and shelter and with unusual opportunities for education. With this, however, and inextricably and continuously intertwined with it went inhibitions, pinpricks and open insults, which grew and swelled in my soul to proportions far beyond their intrinsic worth. Where could I eat? Where must I live? What could I do for self-support? Was I among the public invited? Was it worthwhile entering this competition? Was the Harvard Glee Club fair in judging my voice? Was the Pullman sleeper really sold out? In all these ways and a 100 more all my life, I was trained to expect discrimination. Often, probably most times, there is no unfairness, but my fatherland conditioned me for a half century to expect this. And too often I met what I looked for. And despite reason and philosophy, I nurtured hate for a nation with this cast of mind. Then beyond myself, I saw and is, is it too small if I have two pages at once?
2: Make it a little bigger.
5: Okay, I'll make it bigger. Then beyond myself, I saw and knew what America did to less fortunate Negroes than myself. I searched for and read details of every lynching and died horribly with the victim. I vividly imagined what I did not see or even hear of. I was soon clothed with a spiritual provincialism and an inner withdrawal and antagonism beyond reason and experience. Thus to me, my native land spelled not affection but grim duty. This is my native land, I shall never live elsewhere. I could not if I would, I would not if I could. Probably nowhere else would I have received more if as much in inspiration and opportunity. Had I been born in Africa in 1868, I would have grown up to be slave of European or of American investment. If I had been born in England, I would have had even less opportunity than in the United States. In France, I would have had more, but would have been cut off from the Negro people and never known them or their problems. That would have meant that the plight of the poor and ignorant and sick of the world would hardly have touched me at all, or certainly not as deeply and intimately as it had to penetrate the soul of an American Negro. That is why I spurned the well meant advice of a great and liberal white Georgian, a great and liberal white Georgian gave me. You're right in your fight and your demands, he said, but you can never win equality in this land. Your struggle is in vain. Why do you not go to France and live? I answered in my breast, all right then, I'll lose. I'd rather lose fighting here where I was born than win in Europe. And why? Because this nation belongs to me, even if I have never belonged to this nation. And no goddamn southerner, nor cowardly Northern Copperhead, nor servile white folk nigger was going to stop my fight for the absolute freedom and equality of Black folk in America. But I am not so narrow as to think of the United States solely from the interests of me and my people. I know what America has meant to the world. Here for the first in modern days, liberty and equality blossomed to real flower. Here democracy received a trying out like nothing Europe nor Asia ever saw. Here on the vaster scale than elsewhere ever, myriads of men, A and women of differing nationalities and capacity have lived together in peace and happiness and worked widely as they chose and thought as they would. America is triumph and accomplishment for more men than ever anywhere before. It only happens that my fate has been not to be regarded as a fellow human being by most Americans and not treated as such. I will not forget or understate what America has meant to white folk. And two, I will not bear false witness as to me and mine, either by lauding my slavery or thanking Abraham Lincoln for emancipation. I have said and always will continue to say while I speak that the treatment of Negroes in this land, past and now, shames and besmirches the escutcheon of a great and mighty nation whose son, despite this, it is my privilege to be, The experience has narrowed my vision and made me provincial. I've seen Irishmen crawling out of the filth of their bogs to step in my face and crow. Hillbillies and crackers from Alabama and Arkansas could spit on me to the applause of thousands. German peasants newly free could insult me and Italians and Slovaks and a thousand others could not only deprive me of a living but depend on white American mobs and police to jail or even lynch me for protesting. When in season and out of, and out I protest, it is pointed out with perfect truth that in America, I have received food and clothes, adequate shelter, education far beyond my fellows, black and white, and not little honor and appreciation. I still maintain that my treatment in America has been exceptional and not characteristic. That my fate was not due to my desert, but to lucky chance more often than to philanthropy. Had I been born, on a Mississippi plantation instead of in a New England village, had not liberalism at Harvard in the last decade of the 19th century cracked its doors to a few students from beyond Back Bay, if Rutherford Hayes, perhaps with some qualms at his role in reconstruction, had not given me a Slater Fund Fellowship against the advice of respectable America, I might now lie buried as deep as thousands of unknown Black boys of quite equal gifts. This land is at fault and grievously guilty for not doing for thousands of more worthy Negroes what she has inadvertently done for me and for utterly discouraging black boys and girls less stubborn and lucky than I, to reach for the stars, to reach for stars instead of being content in the gutter. Only a few years ago, a professor at Baldwin protested against sending a brilliant black student to Harvard on fellowship, lest he quote, become bitter like Du Bois. (laughs) And when Harvard gave gave him a doctorate and used his thesis as a classroom text, the head of his department said confidentially to a friend of mine, we'd keep him here to teach if he wasn't a nigger. Far more important than this, I contend that the United States, in suppressing her millions of black folk, has ruined the ideals of liberty, equality, and democracy for the mass of her white citizens and for the world. No double standard of decency can bring the millennium. My reasoning may be strained, but whether the reader agrees or not, I am sure he can understand the impact which Russia had upon me in 1926. I was not naive enough to think that I had visited utopia. On the contrary, I knew quite well that I had had but a brief glance at small part of a vast land and of a desperately complicated problem. I boasted to my intimates that I was at the time the one American who had been a month in Russia and had not written a book about it. If I may quote a sour-mouthed old virago whom the New York Board of Education insists on keeping to teach quote niggers and Jews their places. I have gained most of my advantages in America by insisting on quote being where I was not wanted. There have to be sure been times when pushing in, I have found courtesy and welcome, but not usually. Why then over long years and with bitten lips have I continued to push? Because I wanted the opportunities of Harvard. Because I wanted to hear the ring of Nibelungs. Because I was tired and hungry, otherwise believe me, I would have been as absent always as I was sometimes. I cannot avoid being surprised when a white American treats me with courtesy. This is unfair to many white folk because usually they are reasonably polite, but because of memories of a long past and because at the time, at time somewhere, I can be sure of more or less direct insult. It is this sort of thing that makes living in the United States no unalloyed joy for black folk. I can thus at once look on the United States as an outsider and continuous visitor, unintegrated into its culture and yet knowing and sharing it. I can see as few others can the way in which the presence of a depressed class of human beings has distorted and still distorts our social development. My emotional sympathy with this group will doubtless exaggerate its influence and for this margin of error, the reader must make allowance. Nevertheless, my total view is worth setting down. Meantime, my full and unstinting loyalty and service went to my fellows of Negro descent, not simply in the United States, but in the West Indies and in Africa, which I never saw until I was 16. Thence, by logic, I gave my friendship to all colored folk in Asia and in the South Seas, hoping that in some way the dark world would unite forces and thrust itself again across the color bar. In earlier years, I pictured this as conquest of the whites by revolt and war. After the First World War, I renounced force, convinced that by war alone, no cause can win. Afterward, I looked increasingly for mental and moral victories of black over white. When the free land and resources of America were thrown open to Europe, they became in part a gift to the landless poor of Europe and a gateway to freedom of speech, freedom of belief, and freedom from want and fear. But the presence of Indians and Negroes as low-paid labor, depressed by slavery and caste, also made this continent a boon to producers of basic material in the worldwide demand, which were exchanged into capital goods and became the foundation of a new capitalism out of which the swiftly growing technique developed an industrial revolution. Thus, both individual freedom and exploitation of labor developed side by side in America and were confused in world thought as differing aspects of the same expanding culture. This was possible because Negroes came to be regarded as not human in the same sense as whites and as thus presenting no challenge to humanity or religion. When modern capitalism built on the slave trade and slavery began to raise Europe to wealth and power The white workers of both Europe and America began also to feel the pinch of poverty in the midst of progress and struck back in an organized labor movement, which gained them political power and elementary education. And in America developed into an attempt to limit the area of slave labor and especially to keep from the slave system, the vast free land acreage of the West. Economic power in the United States opposed this with an attempt to preserve slave labor and the cotton and sugar which it used and extend its area not only in this country but also to the Southwest and the Caribbean area. This aroused an organized anti-slavery movement helped by fugitive slaves and by white laborers who sought to get rid of slave competition. Civil war ensued which resulted in victory for the North when the Southern slaves began to desert the plantation and even to enter the ranks of the Northern armies as soldiers. There were in 1864, 200,000 armed black soldiers in the Union army, used as shock troops and for garrison duty. Beside these, there were at least 250,000 black laborers, scouts and servants. There was no reason that by 1866, these numbers might not be increased to a million. It was this clear fact unmentioned by North or South which brought surrender in 1865. Dilemma thereupon faced the nation. It had not at first fought to free the slaves, but to prevent the spread of slave labor. It accepted slaves, helped to win the war, and emancipation as a war measure. Now it looked on four million poor and ignorant freedmen. What was to be done? Both philanthropy and decency demanded for these victims of 250 years of exploitation and degradation, a system of adequate employment with decent wages, civil rights, a minimum of land and tools and education. An attempt was made toward this, first in education by the more democratic churches. Then a Freedmen's Bureau was proposed by Sumner and Stevens in whose charge the Freedmen and white refugees were to be placed and trained for full citizenship. This was a great start toward real democracy and incipient socialism in the United States without color caste and with full economic opportunity. It was stopped and frustrated by threat and compromise. The threat of the beaten slave power to use their increased political power based on emancipation to lower the tariff and repudiate the war debt. Swift retaliation on the part of that industry which had been built on the war tariff and by finance holding millions of gold bonds resulted in the enfranchisement of the freedmen. The white South was aghast, but still based on hope, but still based hope on the certain failure of Negroes as voters. Negroes did not fail. They attempted a social dictatorship of labor, black and white and succeeded in establishing free education, some division of the land and welfare legislation. Northerners helped them and poor white labor began to join the blacks. If the South had regarded Negroes as human, if it, had been abo- if it had seen abolition as a benefit instead of as a threat, it would have consented to build a new South on equality, democracy and education. This effort, the whole nation should have helped generously considering the losses and distress of war but no substantial part of the South would consider this for a moment. The whole training of the South for centuries had been toward petty aristocracy and slave labor. The overwhelming majority wanted past conditions restored as nearly and completely as possible. They envied the rich North. They hated, quote, niggers. The industrial leaders of the North were equally indifferent or even immune to democracy. They had come out of the war with wealth, monopoly, and privilege protected by tariff legislation, federal subsidy for ships and railroads, new machinery and the latest technique, the North stood tiptoe on the vastest expansion of industry the world had ever known. The white South, both former masters and ambitious poor whites, were asked to promise not to touch the tariff, not to scale the national debt, and to give the the nation control of industry without state interference. In return for this, the South was tacitly assured that they could lynch, mob, and kill Negroes and treat black labor as slave in almost everything but name. This bargain was consummated in 1876 after a hectic decade of struggle when the temporarily enfranchised Negroes put up a tragic and hopeless struggle to enter modern democracy as free men despite their handicap of ignorance and poverty. Their effort did not wholly fail It succeeded in many ways. The success doomed it. White American labor, war-weary and confused, accepted this compromise, convinced that Negroes were not their equals and failing to realize how this exploited minority would help to keep down their wage. To the disenfranchised Negro was added 1861 to 1900, 14 million white immigrants who flooded the labor market Lowered wage and living standards, and precipitated a new civil war of labor and capital. In 1877, the white world looked on complacently, drugged by the upsurge of capitalism the world over, now developing into colonial imperialism and rationalizing its progress on the theory of inferior races, working for the comfort and luxury of white Europe. This was exactly what British and French aristocracy and plutocracy wanted before the Civil War and were about to achieve when emancipation threatened to upset their plans. Now with new and triumphant industry in America, all this was accomplished and the American Negroes were kept in slavery in all but name so as to encourage no ambitions among the dark serfs of Africa and Asia. By 1885, the United States had adopted its basic philosophy Quote, life was business and business was life. Civilization was the product of industry and industry was seed and product of human culture. Without profitable industry, nothing worthwhile was possible and science, art, and religion were the gracious gifts of the merchant and his banker. The United States entered upon its fabulous modern career as the greatest industrial nation on earth. Business enterprise was free of practically all moral, conventional, and religious restraints. Americans lied, stole, murdered, lynched, and mobbed. Their untrammeled exploits became world legends, but wages rose, comforts multiplied, and the national standard of living increased. The poor boy who rose from poverty to wealth beyond the dreams of avarice by any sort of cheating and lying he could use, the errant boy who came to rule an empire of business assisted by violence and murder, the industry which extended over the nation and reached Europe and Asia by hijacking and deception, the technique which performed miracles unheard of and undreamed of. For manufacturing millionaires, this was America. This was white supremacy. Big business consolidated its power in the last quarter of the 19th century under reckless, able, and unscrupulous leaders. By 1894, industry became a flight of everybody for himself, a fight of everybody for himself, with monopoly of the necessaries of life as the prizes. Millions of property were transferred from the possession of the many to that of the few without the knowledge of the many, nor their consent without compensation and by falsehood and in violation of law. Quote, every great fortune that rolled out of the 19th century was rooted in fraud. In their absorbing passion for the accumulation of wealth, men were plundering the resources of the country like burglars looting a palace. The share of the national income received by the richest 1.6% of the population rose from 10.8% in 1896 to 19% in 1909. Meantime, in this same America, free individual enterprise was reaching its practical limits. Cutthroat competition, anarchy of method, aim and plan was throwing business into industrial chaos. Fortunes were mounting, millionaires multiplying, but the total economy was not safe. Here is a chance for the socialist theories of Europe to be applied and our own dreamers like Henry George and Balami began to point this out. The United States turned to another direction. Through private planning and volunteer combinations, industrial effort began to be centralized and competition limited. This put curbs on individual initiative. The vaunted American freedom was disappearing and liberals complained. But business answered that this was in the nature of modern industry and social laws. To which the logical reply was that the state, the legal expression of the public will was the natural organ to take over such private industry as could not be conducted efficiently by separate individuals. To this answer, America would not listen. In 1894, there were already over 400 combinations to monopolize the necessaries of life. The census of 1900 showed that half of these combinations controlled one third of the manufacturing resources of the nation. By 1908, there were 10,000 combinations with 31 billions of capital. In the 20th century, while the farmer's income fell and wages stood still, incomes of 10,000 and up rose 114% in nine years. The number of persons with incomes of 100,000 up increased from 6,633 in 1916 to 14,816 in 1929. Huge corporations replaced individual enterprise and business increased to vast dimensions. But in such integration, there was not only no democratic control, but as one millionaire said, it was personal or oligarchic rule by divine right in the hands of men to quote, whom God in his wisdom had entrusted this wealth. But these corporations to function properly and completely had to have certain functions of government, police power, court injunctions, eminent domain in acquiring land and other property control of money and credit and fixing of wages and profits. To attain such powers, the corporations went into politics, first to prevent democratic government from exercising these functions against monopoly business, next to control their exercise by the representatives of industry. The rise of modern corporation has brought a concentration of economic power which can compete on equal terms with the modern state. Economic power versus political power, each strong in its own field. The state seeks in some aspects to regulate the corporation while the corporation steadily becomes more powerful. Making every effort, makes every effort to avoid such regulation. Where its own interests are concerned, it even attempts to dominate the state. The future may see the economic organism now typified by the corporation not only on an equal plane with the state, but possible even superseding it as the dominant form of social organization. It was not so much government taking over private enterprise as private enterprise taking over the functions of government. In Wilson's administration, automobile interests secured 240 million of public funds to promote road building. Soon the United States had the most elaborate system of roads in the world ostensibly for the farmers, but really for an infant industry set on its feet at public expense. The airplane industry was financed by government funds. The pioneer inventors, like the Wrights, got next to nothing while financiers reaped fortunes. The same was true of shipping, railroads, radio, and other industries. Pioneering don't pay, said Andrew Carnegie. In many industries which individuals cannot develop, Corporations are brought in and become more powerful than the state. There in the United States, 30 corporations with assets of more than 1 1 billion each. Thus United States steel, United States rubber and general motors take over the name and many of the functions of government and yet make profit as private individuals. Thus often the private corporation or even individuals can perform functions of a public nature which the state is unable to perform as when a single millionaire provides a site for the United Nations, or when a corporation televises their proceedings. These may be public spirited acts, but they are public functions, and it is a question if wealth should be allowed to accumulate under private control, so as to perform work which the government under democratic control should be able to do. A society in which production is governed by general economic forces is being replaced by one in which production is carried on under the control of a handful of individuals. Quote, the economic power in the hands of the few persons who control a giant corporation is a tremendous force which can harm or benefit a multitude of individuals, affect whole districts, shift the currents of trade, bring ruin to one community and prosperity to another. The organizations which they control have passed far beyond the realm of private enterprise they've become more nearly social institutions. Private wealth by bribing public officials got incalculable values for almost nothing. As at Teapot Dome and in this and analogous cases, control of industry began to be affected, not by persons investing their own resources, but by the power which banks as custodians exercise over these resources. As Justice Brandeis said, Such control of other people's money made for recklessness, speculation, and the reaping of enormous profits which the real owners of capital did not share. Lawmakers were bribed and even elections of presidents controlled as in the Brian McKinley contest. World War burst on this development. We tried at first to stand aside and use the war for profit. Then when we had to enter, we let business profit in the handling of army funds in the purchase of lands and materials and in shipping until the South especially became rich through international disaster. Of the causes of the First World War, President Wilson said, quote, the real reason that the war that we have just finished took place was that Germany was afraid her commercial rivals were going to get the better of her. And the reason why some nations went into the war against Germany was that they thought Germany would get the commercial advantage of them. The seed of the jealousy, the seed of the deep-seated hatred was successful commercial and industrial rivalry. Following the war came a hectic spurt of business with a pause in 1920, and then a wild rush of speculation from 1922 to 1929. The American world went money mad. A new economic era was opening with profits incalculable. Banks and corporations poured surplus cash into the money market and contributed heavily to the campaigns, which put Harding, Coolidge, and Hoover in the White House. Then came the day of reckoning. Black panic engulfed the nation on October 29, 1929. 16 million shares and corporations changed hands in five hours, dragging down millions of paper profits. Millionaires became paupers, captains of industry committed suicide, and the world stared at the worst depression in modern days. At the helm of state was the easygoing Harding, the colorless Coolidge, and at the crash, Herbert Hoover. Hoover for 20 years had been a promoter and investor for Britain and Asia, Africa, and Australia. He had heavy investments in Russian oil and lumber before the revolution. In some years, he drew salaries aggregating $100,000 a year. As food commissioner during and after the war, he helped the war against Russia. As secretary of commerce, he acted so as to nullify the laws against trusts by furnishing government data to help corporations set prices. This gained him the presidency with the help of prejudice against Catholics. As president, he drove the veterans out of Washington, signed the highest tariff law in history against the the advice of the economists, And when the crisis broke, refused the demands of Congress for aid to the unemployed. Thus, when capitalism collapsed throughout Europe, our business enterprise was largely under control of trusts. Our international trade stopped by tariffs, the whole of our banking system near bankruptcy, the gold standard began to totter, and 10 million American workers were unemployed and facing starvation. Hoover remained firm and stubborn. This was but a temporary upset. Our economy was fundamentally sound. Prosperity was just around the corner. Capital needed temporary help, and capital, once on its feet, would take care of labor. Then in 1933, Franklin Delano Roosevelt became president of the United States and remained in that position until his death in 1945. Twelve pregnant years for the world and years of revolution for America. Who is this man Roosevelt and what did he try to do? He was not like Hoover, a businessman and industrial promoter. He was not like Coolidge, a conventional New England farmer. He was a politician but of higher type than Harding or Truman. He was a man of manners and training, with knowledge of polite society, literature and sports. He was a man of inherited wealth, who had never had to earn a living. He enjoyed an unearned income. But could not conceive making money as a main object of life he said bluntly in his first inaugural speech quote the only thing we have to fear is fear itself nameless unreasoning unjustified terror which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance we face our common difficulties they concern thank god only material things values have shrunk to fantastic levels taxes have risen our ability to pay has fallen Government of all kinds is faced by serious curtailment of income. The means of exchange are frozen in the currents of trade. The withered leaves of industrial enterprise lie on every side. Farmers find no markets for their produce and the savings of many years in thousands of families are gone. More important, a host of unemployed citizens face the grim problem of existence and an equally great number toil with little return. Only a foolish optimist can deny the dark realities of the moment. And yet our distress comes from no failure of substance. We are stricken by no plague of locusts. Compared with the perils which our forefathers conquered because they believed and were not afraid, we have still much to be thankful for. Nature still offers her bounty, and human efforts have multiplied it. Plenty is at our doorstep, but a generous use of it languished in the very sight of the supply. Primarily, this is because the rulers of the exchange of mankind's goods have failed through their own stubbornness and their own incompetence, have admitted their failure and have abdicated. Practices of the unscrupulous money changers stand indicted in the court of public opinion, rejected by the hearts of minds and men. Yes, the money changers have fled from their high seats in the temple of our civilization. We may now restore that temple to the ancient truths. The measure of the restoration lies in the extent to which we apply social values more noble than, merely, than mere monetary profit. There's here no doubt of Roosevelt's radical thought. Roosevelt was not a socialist, but he was tremendously impressed by socialism. He was stirred by the socialistic legislation of Britain, Germany, and France in the early 20th century. Especially did the idea of a planned economy espoused by the Soviet revolution of 1917 attract him as it attracted all inquiring minds of that day. He said once in the early days of communism, quote, I recognize that many leaders in Russia were bringing education and better health and above all better opportunity to millions who had been kept in ignorance and serfdom under the imperial regime. I disliked the regimentation under communism. I abhorred the indiscriminate killings of thousands of innocent victims. I heartily deprecated the banishment of religion. This fact is forgotten or ignored today. The Trotsky propaganda and the extirpation of Russian treason had repelled him and many others, but the basic plan of economic reform sank deep in the minds of all liberals, even of many even of many who today are swearing by high heaven that they never never saw anything hopeful in the soviet union the fact remains that roosevelt recognized the soviet union in the first year of his administration after wilson harding coolidge and hoover had waited 16 years to perform this simple act of justice it was the educational system of his day which had fa- which failed roosevelt in his deepest need His experience in industrial organization was not wide. His knowledge of the social developments of his age was narrow. He and his fellows of that day did not receive in school or college any broad foundation in social science. He needed the guidance of a Karl Marx, a Friedrich Engels, a Lenin, who had plumbed the depth and breadth of modern industrial development. But such men were not mentioned, much less studied in the American College of Roosevelt's day. At Harvard, they were heresy and elsewhere anathema, but they were attacked by silence and neglect, not yet by witch hunting as today. Although by 1936, more teachers had been dismissed for unorthodox economics than ever before. Roosevelt's brain trust was ridiculed because an executive tried to appeal to science instead of industry for guidance. The appeal was not conspicuously successful because science, more especially social science, was in its ivory tower stage and had little truck with politics and business. The Harvard professor on whom he called for advice on finance was far too theoretical for current money problems. In general, it was clear that Americans' study of social problems was superficial and academic and furnished slight hope or scientific help for Roosevelt. Sociology in the United States had not yet taken itself seriously. With Harvard, it long hesitated even to call itself a science, but modestly regarded itself as a collection of miscellaneous facts about human beings, arranged in statistical tables or mathematical formulae. A real science of human conduct was simply beyond the conception of most teachers of sociology. Human action was viewed therefore either as pure chance or the result of undiscovered or undiscoverable law. There was one teacher in a small Western college, Macy, who helped Roosevelt and Measurable by teaching a gangling youth, Harry Hopkins, to take social reform seriously. Hopkins had studied poverty and charity on New York's East Side. He had lived in social settlements, those 19th century efforts to see, quote, how the other half lives, and do something about it. He and I both used to frequent Lillian Wald settlement, but we did not speak. There was a a wall between us, which confined me in action and interest to the narrow and quasi-nationalistic field of black folk. He was reaching out to the world. He had already given Roosevelt hard work and loyalty of a rare order and eventually supplied the socialist twist to his policies. So Franklin Roosevelt started with a strong word of his cousin Teddy at John Brown's Osawatomie in 1910, strong but never implemented. quote, "We grudge no man of fortune in civil life if it is honorable obtained, if it is honorably obtained and well used. It is not enough that it should have been gained without doing damage to the country. We should permit it to be gained only so long as the gaining represents benefits to the community. This, I know, implies a policy of far more active government interference with social and economic conditions in this country than we have yet had. But I think we have got to face the fact that such an increase in governmental control is necessary. Roosevelt faced three fields of effort, restoration of industry, relief distress, and reform of the social organization. The Soviet Union would have advised first reform, then relief and finally restoration with the thought that an overall plan of reorganized economic life would be prerequisite to any permanent relief or any reorganization of industry which would avoid waste. But this would have been impossible in a land which was sure that despite temporary disaster, ours was the last word in industrial organization. Moreover, Hoover had already made a start to rehabilitate the tottering bank structure. Roosevelt moved to reopen the banks and restore confidence following with surrendering the gold standard and curiously enough, government insurance of small depositors. Here is the opportunity and duty to assume national control of banking, which would have been following the clear trend of scientific thought. Government control of money, credit and distribution of capital was spreading in the world and after the war seemed to most thinkers, even to those who are not socialistic, as imperative as the postal service. Neither Roosevelt nor his advisors had any clear overall conception of the economic status of the world and its development and cure. They paid no attention to Karl Marx, Saint-Simon, Fourier, Robert Owen, or Louis Blanc, They had assimilated the American obsession that normal life is mainly industry. When therefore business failed, the one duty was to restore it, rehabilitate it. That the system of industry which the 19th century had raised to world rule, had itself collapsed, not only on account of world war, but from subtler reasons which they did not grasp. Whether the former industrial setup could be restored, or how it could be improved, or whether it must be replaced. These were certainly questions which all called for study and examination. There is no indication that in the United States, or in the councils of the government, or in the world of science, any such attitude was contemplated. Without hesitation or inquiry, it was assumed that the only problem before America was how industry could most quickly be restored to its former stature and functions. And the reason for this unrealistic and unscientific state of mind was the extent to which the United States was ruled, directed, and schooled by organized industry. Indeed, it was the firm belief of America that human action was so unpredictable. That planning for the future on any national scale was futile and every action must be guided by individual and local trial and error. Yet most men knew that this attitude was unrealistic and forced on the country by selfish business interests. This land should and could know accurately the income of all citizens and its source and kind. It could know what taxes each person pays for the support of government. It could know price levels and changes, costs of processing property and ownership and rents, ownerships of corporations with income and expense, salaries and dividends. We could measure sickness and death, education and occupation far more accurately than our hit or miss census methods now accomplish. With this body of knowledge and a mass of other data concerning life and deeds of men, we could act and legislate with some accuracy and not by guesswork without infringing any privacy to which men have any essential right. Relief came next when Roosevelt came to power. Relief came next. When Roosevelt came to power, he faced 13 million unemployed. Unemployment was too critical and explosive a matter to be handled entirely by industry. Here, naked socialism entered despite furious opposition. Under Harry Hopkins, 20 million independent free Americans Received millions of dollars in doles and were thus raised from, from poverty, despair, and crime. And w- it was an astonishing performance for America, and to many, seemed the end of the world. Why should a rich land where everybody was free to initiate enterprise and accumulate wealth resort to charity in order to survive? The plain answer was that millions of Americans were not free, could not earn a living, and faced starvation that millions more of Americans dependent on the spendings of the presently unemployed faced analogous disaster. The country had no time even to inquire into the real causes of this situation before they must feed the hungry and make work for the idle. Hopkins said, I have never liked poverty. I have never believed that with our capitalistic system, people have to be poor. I think it is an outrage that we should permit hundreds and hundreds of people to be ill-clad To live in miserable homes. Not to have enough to eat. Not to be able to send their children to school for the only reason that they are poor. I don't believe ever again in America are we going to permit the things to happen that have happened in the past to people. We are never going back again, in my opinion, to the days of putting the old people in the almshouse when when a decent, dignified pension at home will keep them there. We are coming to the day when we are going to have decent houses for the poor, when there is genuine and real security for everybody. I've gone all over the moral hurdles that people are poor because they are bad. I don't believe it. A system of government on that basis is fallacious. In October, 1933, Hopkins knew that with winter coming on the unemployment problem was bound to become more desperate and that the only solution was a huge work program. Thus by his advice, the CWA succeeded state and local programs of relief and was operated and 90% of its support came from federal funds. This aroused keen fears of socialism among many. It was one of the broadcast programs ever instituted by the United States government and sought to provide individual work as near as possible to to previous employment with pay prevailing wages with a minimum of 30 cents an hour. The winter of 1933 to 34 was a terrible one with severe cold and later floods and hurricanes. Suffering was widespread and the initial appreciation of 400 millions was supplemented by 950 million to sustain 20 million in distress. In three and a half months, the CWA built or improved 40,000 schoolhouses, laid 12 million feet of sewer pipe, built 496 airports and improved 529 others. Built or improved 255 million, I mean, thousand miles of road, employed 50,000 teachers to teach adults and open rural schools, built or improved 3,700 playgrounds and athletic fields. Among the 4,264,000 for whom work was found were 3,000 writers and artists. It will take the nation long to realize what was done for American culture by this great gesture before it was sabotaged by organized industry. Indeed, under present restrictions, the truth may never be known. Borglum the sculptor wrote, you have the only department that is free to help the creative impulses of the nation. All other aids take in the character of hard business. This part of the program brought the most bitter criticism and was the first to be dropped. With the passage of the Omnibus Work Relief Bill, there appeared three divisions of the relief program. A general clearinghouse, the PWA under ICS, designed to help private enterprise by pump priming, and the WPA under Hopkins, designed to furnish work, regardless of its commercial value. This program eventually cost $10 billion. The enemies of the New Deal pounced on the WPA as a matter of handouts to panhandlers. Only Roosevelt's popularity saved it. It rescued not only 20 million needy, but the manufacturers, shopkeepers, and landlords dependent on them. The attempt to rescue the farmers from bankruptcy followed in part the American industrial pattern, which was to raise prices by artificial scarcity. Thus in a hungry and naked world, we had the extraordinary spectacle of food being destroyed and the production of necessary materials curtailed. Yet for a hundred years, it had been known that the earth could provide for the wants of men if reasonably distributed. Mm. A national survey in 1934, when there were 12 million unemployed and nearly 20 million on relief, reported that there could be plenty for all. But as Roosevelt groped toward that ideal, in the same year, the superintendent of schools of Gary, Indiana, that steel trust town, made headlines and secured investigation by Congress when he declared that certain members of the quote brain trust had confessed to him that they aimed at overthrowing our government and establishing communism in this country. The real underlying of effort was to transfer some of the swollen income of industry to the persons who raised basic materials big business was never was ever concerned to prevent abundance of goods from flooding the market the new deal sought to bring agriculture into this program because the farmers during the war had so increased production that now farm prices were about to collapse to do this directly by taxation on business was opposed by industry But since it must be done, it was accomplished by destruction of food and by bonus. But the bonus instead of reaching the dirt farmer quite often reached only the Junker land monopoly, which was applying capitalist methods to farming and reducing the dirt farmer to tenancy. The attempt to go further and help the small farmer with his mortgages was sabotaged largely by the Supreme Court. But that Roosevelt was far ahead in his thinking of the average intelligent American was clear from the revolutionary nature of his next steps, the Tennessee Valley Authority and the National Recovery Act, both of which involved reform of basic American economy. The most startling measure of the New Deal was the National Recovery Act by which the government tried temporarily to assume direct control over the entire business of the country. It did not directly take over industries but invited representatives to Washington to work out codes of fair dealing to be followed. Industries which refused might be put under a blanket code. Those which violated the code would have the blue eagle, symbol of cooperation taken away. By the end of Roosevelt's first year, nearly 400 codes had been drawn up and 90% of the industrialists of the country were supporting the NRA. The terms fixed minimum wages, prescribed hours of labor, abolished sweatshop and child labor in various industries, and required businessmen to submit to the examination of their books by government inspectors.
0: Uh, We could, I think we can pause there. Okay. Thank thank you for reading. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a lot uh, in this chapter. Uh, It's hard to find a place to pause, but... uh, Essentially, I think the first part of the first half of what we read was kind of a summary of what had happened between really he gave a brief overview of the founding of the nation until the time he was writing. And uh, the second half of it was going more in depth about the Great Depression and uh, Roosevelt and this kind of great, very interesting what he says. I mean, kind of an experiment. I think he even used the word revolution in some ways in uh, American government. Um, but there's a there's a lot there for us to to discuss um i mean uh at least start maybe starting at the beginning this point he made uh is kind of parallels what we were discussing earlier about he saw the promise of america especially what it meant to the poor of europe but of course he also sees the the ways in which you know it hasn't seen the humanity of black folks so he gives a very kind of uh sophisticated uh, perspective on the the possibilities of America, and then he walks us through what's happened with uh, Reconstruction being a moment in which those promises could have been fulfilled. And very interesting, he he frames the defeat of Reconstruction as something very vital to the emergence of colonialism and imperialism. Because with the defeat of Reconstruction, the defeat of what he called the social dictatorship of labor, black and white, the American state can move towards becoming an empire, going into Cuba, the Philippines, and Europe also. Very interestingly, the European empires could find more of a vindication of the theory of racial inferiority to, uh, to, to justify colonization of Asia and Africa. And he talks about the growth of these monopolies uh, and, and, and says every single fortune of the 19th century was built on fraud. And uh, if you compare the monopolies, the monopolies of today make those monopolies sometimes look like, you know, <laughs> small stuff. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> when we t- we're getting into the big tech monopolies and stuff. Um, and the world war, the depression, these ineffective president, corrupt presidents like uh, Coolidge and uh, Harding and Teapot Dome scandal. And then Hoover, he briefly mentioned how Hoover sent the veterans back from DC. And that was actually a reference to uh, when the Depression had hit, there was the Bonus Army, which is all these veterans who had fought in World War I, who came to get some relief from the government. And Hoover called the uh, military to suppress them and send them back very violently. Uh, but then this is what I found very interesting, how he talks about the election of Roosevelt, and Roosevelt as a man, a very contradictory man, a man who's, who's very wealthy, but doesn't see money as Uh, He doesn't understand a life driven by just the accumulation of money. A man who's taking seriously the Soviet experiment, even if he's not a socialist, very interesting. And this figure, Harry Hopkins also, who's this Midwestern social worker, who's also taking seriously this question of poverty. And uh, it's quite, I mean, it's when we talk about how we're ignorant of our own history, some of the things which we talked about, literacy campaigns, uh, these artistic campaigns, I think very few people know that any of this was ever attempted in the U.S. And the, some of the acronyms which you use, the CWA, uh, which is Civil Works Administration, the WPA, Works Progress Administration, those are basically attempts where they said we're going to give everyone employment and we're going to build, rebuild the infrastructure of the country, schools, hospitals, roads, and we're actually going to hire people and put them to work you know, trying to deal with this question of severe poverty. And uh, you compare that to the Democratic Party of today, where we're saying spending billions of dollars in the election and has no serious program of putting people back to work. Quite interesting contrast. I mean, those are my initial thoughts on it. But of course, want to hear from everyone else.
6: Yeah, I was gonna say earlier, it's kind of sad, but also in some ways just one makes you wanna laugh that all this money was put into ads on Facebook and all over social media to protect our democracy. When it's like, what at at a certain point, you just think to yourself like, I don't even wanna protect this democracy if it's not gonna actually do anything to solve problems, alleviate poverty, give people full employment. Um, And one interesting fact is also with FDR, I feel like there's a certain, like, to a lot of white socialists, they really look up to FDR, you know, Bernie likes FDR. But so I was always kind of skeptical about, you know, what FDR actually contributed to America. But, but I was looking through the Philadelphia Tribune, like past issues back in like, I don't know, the 90s or something, maybe 80s. And Lucy, an interview with and Blackwell, he said he said that the two people he really looked up to were Du Bois and FDR, yeah. which I think was really interesting because especially because Lucy and Blackwell in that same interview, when they asked him what the main issue he was concerned about in the city, he said poverty. He said poverty and full employment. Um, so it's interesting connecting it to what you just said Jahan about this experiment, these administrations, and also not just any, I mean, not just like, you know, um, the work projects weren't just about manual labor, but also that they wanted to employ artists. Like Mm -hmm. a lot of the great photographers and artists of the time documenting what's happening in history, the poverty, the um, projects to help, um, help with poverty. I think a lot of the photographs that we've seen that are just really moving from this time period, even the civil rights photographs are from people who were employed, um, who got a lot of funding from the same administrations. Mm
3: Or those murals, you know, like in San Francisco, Coit Towers, they're so influenced by like Diego Rivera and the Mexican muralists, and it was an art that really reflected the dignity of the working man. And you can see it, the way they paint them in all different colors, they paint them as darker peoples, you know, and it's just, it's just, it was like the, I mean, since, I mean, after that there'd be the black arts movement, but it was, it was a time that really where art was really had a purpose you know, an art was really animated by something. And I think this was also this time period was also something that King references a lot when he's putting out like a social program. He's saying, he says, like in the speech, um, you know, the crisis in American cities, um, where he's talking about why these slums, you know, why this poverty, the white world has created it. And it's not necessary. You know, there was a time just 30 years ago, we were bankrupt, but we still did this for people. But even just the economic theory that if you, uh just if you give some kind of social welfare protection to people i mean then you can at least have an economy you know just basic labor economy. it's just all heresy now Mm -hmm. Mm um yeah yeah but i mean also the influence of i mean just when the communist party and communist and these ideas were somewhat they were an influence in american Mm -hmm. society it was before mccarthyism and you know like um yeah, I mean, like the CIO be like fighting for uh, integrated unions, and you know that history also is 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 our history. So like John was saying, we don't know it, um, and we don't know what to draw on. We don't know to draw on Reconstruction. We don't know to draw on the New Deal, and not just you know a fake Green New Deal, but a real New Deal for mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and I feel like especially with the. Um the beginning of the chapter, which is, as Johan was saying, is like very autobiographical. Um, I feel like in a lot of ways, Du Bois is telling his own life story to sort of show, um, it's like to, to paint a picture to like show the importance of what is the ideological and historical framework that someone is coming from. Because I feel like he also uses that to maybe even, Like when he talks about um, how him and Harry Hopkins were working in the same social work, you know, in New York but they were kind of divided by the color line. Um, And I think one of the questions that I have, you know coming from that initial part of the chapter was when Du Bois talks about this provincialism of um, being a a Negro or viewing viewing the problems of America from the standpoint of the American Negro. Um, I feel like at the same time, like He's talking about this provincialism, where he says, like, I was sometimes um, narrowly focused on the problems of, the, of my people, of darker people. But at the same time, he's saying it was this, like, you know, the ability um, or the position of seeing America almost as an outsider or as a visitor, um, which allowed him to also see like what that connection was to you know the darker peoples of the world you know like connecting that to the Caribbean and to um Africa um you know even in the past chapter when he was talking about China and Asia and all these like the basic problems of the darker peoples of the world and I think like that was one of I feel like the interesting um I don't know, like tensions or like self-awareness that Du Bois had where he's saying like, yeah, maybe it's made me a bit provincial, but also it's what's connecting me to um, the darker peoples of the world. And I think, yeah, just that like how Du Bois was framing it was um, yeah, interesting to me. And also like something that I feel like is worth um, drawing out more because you can also see that and how it plays out in terms of, you know, when he's saying like people like Harry Hopkins or FDR, like Part of the problem was that like you know like social science you know was not treating um or did not view even like marxism or what lenin had produced as uh, a genuine like a genuine field of uh intellectual or social or scientific inquiry you know um and you know how almost like the provincialism of american intellectual thought or social science like that provincialism actually was what produced uh, some of the, almost like the contradictions and how, um, or some of the limitations, at least in how like FDR approached um, approached the crisis of the Great Depression. Um, and then how he, you know, he like very, I feel like, like succinctly, succinctly lays out um, like the, the steps that could have been approached with how you deal with um, the Great Depression. Like, are you gonna go for, social reform um, or even revolution and then relief and then restoration of industry or are you gonna try to restore industry then provide relief and then try for some kind of social reform? And I think, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I don't know if like, it, is Du Bois being ironic when he talks about like his own provincialism or is it, um, yeah, is it something else? I think that was one of my uh, questions or just one of the themes that I thought was um, important at least in this chapter.
0: Do you have thoughts on that on Jeremiah's question
2: so uh, you know um, you know Du Bois is so um, alive mm. he as a thinker he, he brings life to the study of human beings and human action as he calls it and um, I know my grandparents, uh, like Lucian Blackwell, uh, they always admired Franklin Roosevelt and the New Deal, which says to me that like Du Bois is portraying it, this was a renaissance of democracy. Mm -hmm. It was being carried out by people who had very little experience with Actual and full democracy, including himself, mm-hmm. uh, and um, and we're back to this idea of an experiment. The Soviet Union is experimenting, and now the New Deal is an experiment in the throes of a deep crisis. And I guess he's suggesting that out of crisis comes the willingness of people to experiment. Mm. And the other thing that I, you know, and Yvonne and I were talking about this last week, we were talking about how it's not just uh, knowledge of being smart, it's the values that you were raised with. Mm. And he's always a person that wants to know the inside, the interior life of people that have been, uh, that are now having an opportunity to make a contribution to their nation, to their society or to humanity. And what kind of people are these? And he, and he evaluates um, Franklin Roosevelt. And to be honest with you, I think most historians and most people that lived during that time would have agreed with Du Bois's evaluation of Roosevelt. That he was honest, that he was prepared to look at the Soviet Union and the experiment there and that the world, and this is a claim that he made earlier, I think that by its example, socialism in the Soviet Union in the midst of this great crisis of the depression uh, was influencing the way people thought mm. about society and, uh, and such. But the, I'm, I'm just so uh, moved mm. by his emphasis upon democracy and how democracy if fully implemented would take society very near to socialism, Mm -hmm. if not to socialism, that capitalism, what he calls industry, which is a metaphor for the capitalists, were always against democracy. And so, you know, it it seems so much appropriate for the time that we're living in for the discussion we had earlier. Um, Because let me, because it's always so easy to give up on everything, to abandon, I would say a realistic optimism and to retreat into cynicism. Uh, I think the whole embrace of this Biden thing by elites and intellectuals is so cynical and so anti people. Um, And of course democracy is, you know, I mean, in its Greek um, origin, the word means the rule of the people, the rule of the people. And um, now we're so far away from that. But we're in a crisis, almost similar to the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. The numbers say that there's been no level of poverty, unemployment, and, and other dislo- economic dislocation since the end of World War II. We're talking about almost seventy five years, so it's not since the depression have we experienced this. Not since the Civil War has a nation been so divided. So we have two of the greatest crises in American history, the Civil War and the Great Depression, uh, coexisting at the same time. And what is the way out? And, and just, I think Du Bois, I mean, his, his faith in science and social science and knowledge but also in morality, in character, Mm. in honesty, truthfulness. And that's why he gives a lot of uh, attention to Henry Hopkins. We don't know him, but he was an administrator who said, I mean, I'm really a socialist. And as Du Bois said, he gave the socialist character to many of the New Deal programs. I, I'm just, it's, it's just impressive uh, from a, a literary point of view uh, and the sincerity and life and uh, a positive that there is always that way out. And, you know, he's not like identity politics or people who talk a lot of trash. He suffered in this country he was not satisfied with this country because of what it had done to black folk, enslaved black folk. But he did not end there. He knew what his, you know, he talks about his subjective reaction. You know, and he had that tendency to withdraw from white folk. He really did. Uh, and I know it. I know what that's like. You can't, you know, like, you know, let me say a lot of people, they talk about, oh, our family went across the nation and we visited here. <laughs> As a Black person, I knew, we always knew we couldn't travel across the nation. We could barely travel to the, the New Jersey shore. <laughs> because there, it was a limitation upon what we could do in this country. And so, Du Bois doesn't uh, uh, relegate that to well, that happened then. No, and he says how that impacts him. But he still saw this possibility. And the other thing, he always saw the working class, mm-hmm. the unemployed, the hungry, the farmers. This is, this is, these are things that I think have to be. Um, we have to talk about it and, and, and the way Michelle reads it, it's just like, you know, you can almost, it's like Du Bois talking such a, uh, I mean, really Michelle, you, um, everybody could not read and, un, you know, because you read it so we understand it, so we feel it, so we can fully appreciate it as a work of science and a work of art.
6: I also think Harry Hopkins is so significant. Harry
2: Hopkins, I said, Henry, I didn't. I'm I'm sorry.
6: um, That he's significant, but also in some ways so different from today because his training came from working at that settlement, you know, directly with the poor. Um, You go to the poor, you live there, you understand, and it's not really... It's not the same today like that's not where you get your training um, you kind of just go directly and if you're interested in helping people a lot of young people you're taught you're encouraged by your professors to go directly into a nonprofit <laughs> which is like two levels above the people um, and versus Harry Hopkins is kind of interesting because the boys even says, that Roosevelt owes a lot to that one professor, Macy, who I don't know a lot about, but this professor, Macy, who encouraged Harry Hopkins, this eager young man to go directly to the settlements and learn from the poor, learn what it's like. Um, I also think it's really beautiful that Du Bois starts the chapter, which is titled The Reign of Roosevelt, not on Roosevelt, but on himself. And I agree, I was really moved by his description of democracy, like that one quote where he says, here democracy received a trying out like nothing in Europe nor Asia ever saw. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this work is called Russia and America, two great experiments. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and this thing of democracy is so important because despite the fact that a lot of people view the founding fathers, the original American revolutionaries as settlers and you know they're canceled. But in a lot of ways there's something really moving about people who aspire toward these ideals of liberty and equality. And I mean, Du Bois talks about how America truly is an experiment and the reason why the experiment for democracy in America, which could be so great, had been corrupted was because of the way they treated black folks. Um, And that if we were to take the American experiment today seriously enough, we would examine what has happened um and in some ways by starting out the chapter with his own story and you know his grandfather's his ancestors this country but also on black reconstruction in some ways I feel like he's also saying that the American heritage but also this tradition of liberty and equality and the promise of democracy in America at its core at its centrality goes back to the black American um yeah so I just found it really beautiful for the chapter to not start with Roosevelt, but to start with himself um, in order to explain Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure, I'm sure there's more to it, but I always thought when I first read the chapter, you know, I opened my book, I was ready to be like, okay, Roosevelt was born in 1912, whatever, blah, blah, blah. But then it started out with Du Bois saying, I'm an American. And there's something so deep about that.
3: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, well, on that point, uh, Ilana has a comment. I appreciated when Du Bois talked about when he was talking to that guy who was basically saying Du Bois could go to Europe and, quote, win. And Du Bois said he would rather stay in the U.S. and lose fighting. During the escalation to the November 6th election, so many of the people in my graduate program at Penn in neuroscience or somewhat flippantly but often seriously saying they would do whatever they could to get postdoctoral positions in Europe if Trump got elected again, to jump ship. These comments often made me ask myself, at what point would I ever leave the US? Du Bois's assertion that he belongs to the US and that the US was his country is very moving to me. It brings up thoughts and feelings of responsibility and deep appreciation to my country despite its sordid history. Also, I appreciated previous comments in our session about the white progressive tradition. I mentioned that many people in my graduate program would think twice uh, about leaving the US if they felt like they had a responsibility and duty to continue a white progressive tradition. Uh, Jake Harris writes, I was deeply struck as well by the $10 billion figure that created so many jobs that helped perpetuate art and alleviate poverty, in contrast to the $10 to $14 billion spent on a political campaign in 2020. I'm struck because with the wealth that American oligarchs have amassed, we're talking trillions of dollars, that people could be free to have the most uplifting and democratic civilization. I'm deeply angered by the absolute waste of the people's wealth by our government and oligarchy. Eddie Barraza writes, what has influenced the conscience of America, the center of discourse over managing this economic crisis is over at most one-time checks of $2,000 as opposed to a plan for jobs like FDR implemented.
4: Right.
0: Somewhat answering that question, I think, Purba writes, liberal democracy is becoming more and more like a religion. It seems as far removed from the essential meaning of democracy as institutionalized Christianity is from, in Howard Thurman's words, the religion of Jesus. In cancel culture, I find something very reminiscent of burning people at the stake for speaking the truth, labeled as heresy. Nabila writes, responding to Ilana's comments, maybe those students weren't Americans anyway, the ones that wanted to jump. (laughs)
3: <laughs> yeah it actually
6: kind of reminds me of all the people who are like if Trump wins again i'm gonna go to canada
0: <laughs> right right no it's true i mean it shows this uh kind of what we're saying this managerial cosmopolitan class like well, how they have a lack of commitment to any society you know in comparison to the the people who are like okay they're saying america first but you know they're gonna live and die here like their struggle is here they're not going to be like I'm going to move, get my PhD go to Canada or Europe or wherever I can get a plum job or even back to a neo-colony if I can make more money there. You know what I'm saying? Uh, there's something, I mean, I, I agree something is beautiful about Du Bois when he says uh, this, I'd rather lose fighting. It reminds me of Muhammad Ali when they're like, yeah. I'm, saying, I'm not running to Canada. I'm not draft dodging. I'm here. I'm ready to fight you. You're my enemy. You know what I'm saying? It's like that. that's what we call taking a stand. It's not about, Away,
5: right? <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, that's also one of the things that struck me the most from this chapter was like Emily Doc, Jahan, you talked about the, the way that he laid out the start of the chapter where he's saying, okay, I could have been in Africa, but I would have been a slave of European or American investment. Like, you know, he wouldn't have seen the world as clearly. He could have been in France in Europe, but he would have been cut off from the Negro people and their problems. And Yeah, it it actually makes me think a lot about James Baldwin. And recently, I think, um, in the past few months, a new documentary from 1970 came out um, from from, yeah, about his time in Paris, uh, about his like two decades lived in Paris. And there's one scene where he's in Buford Delaney's art studio and he's he's complaining. I mean, he's not complaining, but he's kind of illustrating the the tragedy, you know, of black America. But then he says. You know but I will say I wouldn't give up all the tea for China I wouldn't give up all the something else you know um, to be to be white because I I don't know how I would live with all these lies you know I wouldn't be able to live with all those lies and and then I know um, it also made me think of that that quote when he was saying that um I think he wrote somewhere maybe it was in take me to the water about how um after he was reading about the murder of Dorothy um Dorothy counts I think um or the way not the murder but maybe the way she was treated um right that um he wrote I could simply no longer sit around in Paris discussing the Algerian and black American problem everybody else was paying their dues and it was time I went home and paid mine and yeah I mean in that spirit it's just I feel like you know, it's, it's the spirit of the American revolutionary that you also see in like Grace Lee Boggs, who says you have to love America enough to change it. And yeah, I just think it's tremendously beautiful. And it's also the spirit to come back to right now in a moment of so much cynicism. But yeah, actually, when we were reading the first few pages, I thought so much of the spirit of Baldwin and the spirit of Robeson coming through Du Bois, even though you know, they weren't necessarily overlapping, these were different times, they weren't of the same generation, but it's it's really settling to know that, you know, we're placing ourselves back into that tradition.
1: And also like when he says, when Du Bois says like to to describe the word that like how I feel about America as love would not be English. Like it, reminded me, it also reminded me a lot of um, of King when he talks about these three different forms of love, you know, and ending with agape as something going beyond just liking somebody or something um but actually this um what he says is like this creative um like genuine understanding or um i forget how exactly he says it but this goodwill towards all men you know and i think that's really i yeah it's like similar to baldwin where he's like i can't you know i can't like you or like king says i can't like you if you're lynching me or if you're um yeah like burning down my home or like segregating me and like confining our people to poverty but like I still like love you which is something much deeper and much more um yeah powerful than the sentimentalism which um is how people under like a lot of people understand love in American society it's just sort of like this you know what King says like the sentimental Bosch you know um and yeah, I feel like when Du Bois is saying like it's not I can't even describe it in English, like how I feel towards America. It's like this much more concrete or rooted sense of responsibility, which is in many ways, like it is the truest or highest form of love. But it's like so in many ways, it's so foreign to like what is, um you know, what is popularly accepted or pushed out is like, oh, this is what love means. And yeah, I feel like that was one of the really moving parts of yeah, of like the beginning part of the chapter.
2: I think um, I think you've hit on something very, very important, Jeremiah, for me, because, um, you know, you, you get it in King. He said, we're dealing with something where I'm coming from, that is King, where I'm coming from, I'm talking about something more complex, more complicated, and really at a higher level of human consciousness. It's it's almost Buddhist in many of, in that dimension of the self as part of something much more. And um, because King always talked about a continuum of life, but um, you know, I think you know in in, um, in European modern European thought, contemporary twentieth century on European thought. Uh, by the way, postmodernism drops the human yep. and humanity out of the discussion, and it might explain why so many university educated young people. Have a problem with um, humanity as such that no matter how, um, let's say, undeveloped a group of people are, they're human beings that are worthy, as King would put it, of love. And so this deep connectedness to human beings, and this is different than the, what is called the humanism of existential phenomenology. In other words, it was claimed that thinkers like Hegel in the name of history had lost touch with the actual humanity, the actual human being, and that Nietzsche and going forward, Husserl and Heidegger and Sartre were humanistic. And I always had a problem with understanding what was meant by that. Because when I thought about humanism, I thought it meant The totality of humanity, but what they were saying is that bringing humanism back into philosophy meant something far narrower and abstract, and that's why you know, you know, you just can, you know, you just feel so overjoyed when you listen to Du Bois because he's talking about I'm a human being. I don't like what has happened. But then he doesn't say it like King, but it's it's obvious. Mm -hmm. that to solve the problem of race, of racial oppression, you had to also solve the problem of class oppression and exploitation. And that the path to solving these problems was democracy which for Du Bois is a profoundly human project because it is from the human being up, not from the elite down. And he never, he's never cynical because he believes in ordinary human beings. And that I, I think he, he makes clear that because he is black, with these two sides of his family, the Burkhards, the Du Boises, the black skin and the mulattoes, that's all very interesting. Uh, But um, having been excluded, it's like that excluded middle. I'm in, like you would say, I was at Harvard, I was not of Harvard. You know, it's like he's in the United States, but he's not always sure that he's of the United States. It's all of this irony and paradox that he brings to the discussion, that makes it so real because anybody can identify with it. You know, you could see his life as he speaks and he doesn't need a lot of words to do it in, so it's well, uh, on that,
0: I guess there some critical comments by Nabila. You kind of got answered them somewhat. But she wrote, we all know that eventually W. B. Du Bois did leave his beloved struggle and went home. I guess referring to him going back to Af- going to dying in Ghana. And then she also said uh, when Michelle was talking, I think, about Robeson, Baldwin, Du Bois, she was saying they didn't love America. They loved their people.
2: He did say that. He did say that. And, okay, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. No, go ahead. But that, you see, I would say to Nabila, you know, Du Bois is never either or. It's always, see, irony is not to be just spoken about. An ironic uh, reality is to be resolved. You know, but but in so resolving, a new, new set of ironies. So you're dealing, that's why I say it's not either or it's probably, I think in thought, he um, exemplifies one of the greatest synthetic thinkers. Mm. And by that, I mean, he can deal with irony and contradiction, the the individual and the group, the historical, And the momentary. I mean, he is dealing. You could see this huge brain uh, synthesizing all of these possibilities. Mm. It's not Africa or Afro America. It's not uh, back to Africa or staying in America. You know what I'm saying? It is all of those possibilities because he is dealing at the same time the individual possibilities he goes to Ghana not to die but to explore possibilities of new knowledge and contrary to what some have claimed he never gave up his U.S. citizenship the U.S. government took it from him and I'm certain had he lived he would have fought to regain his passport. Um, and because he was in Ghana did not mean that he was not a part or see himself as a part of the ongoing struggle in this country. Mm. It's, it's, I, think, I think we see something once we, first of all, I think I'd like to give Du Bois the benefit of the doubt. I give him the benefit of the doubt because he is so trustworthy, and in his work and in his life, he's proven himself to be trustworthy of our respect, and you know, giving him the benefit of the doubt. In other words, you know, it's not like a cancel. You you don't cancel a Du Bois, even if you don't agree with a Du Bois. You know, he's not an object of cancellation, an object of ridicule as some have tried to do. That's not DuBois. You give him the benefit because of his experience, because of his knowledge and so on. The other thing is, you have to acknowledge his deep sincerity. He writes as a very sincere person. And he's, you you know what I'm saying? And he's not writing as a corrupt academic. He's not trying to get on the New York Times bestseller list. He's not bootlicking the elite. So um, just, just to con- you know, I don't see his going to Ghana. I mean, he was running into very d- great difficulties in doing his work in this country uh, because of McCarthyism, because of the betrayal of what Glenn Ford calls the black misleadership class, you know? So it was, it was very difficult, but he did not abandon black people in America, uh, nor did he see Africa as the answer to the black problem in the United States. There's a lot we could tease out about that in terms of contemporary uh, ideological issues.
0: Well, anyway, she responds I know Doc W.B. Du Bois is our sweetie. No one can replace him. I thank the Creator for him.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, look, man, if I was a praying man, I would every day. <laughs> I hear you, Nabila. Uh, oh, so but we- I'm sorry, Josh.
0: That's <laughs> no, okay. So there's a couple of comments by uh, Don Debar that ends with a question mark. So I think he's asking a question about Du Bois. He's saying, "From God-centered to human-centered, from ideal to material, from alienated to integrated." Question mark. I don't know. I guess maybe that's that's an accurate description. You can say more. <laughs> no,
2: you go ahead. I'd like to.
0: <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, but anyway, what. Don's kind of writing also makes me think of what you're saying that Du Bois has a synthetic kind of thinker, alienated to integrated, yeah. maybe even integrating ideas from religion and about God with the human-centered. Yeah. Definitely, I think that's that is a correct uh, what you said characterization: synthetic, complex, yes. but in a dialectical. And as we said, dialectic through threes, a oh. different kind, of, a <laughs> broader understanding of dialectics than the yeah. traditional yeah. Marxian. Yeah. So, yeah, Definitely, I think that's why people The problem with academics when they write about him They always frame him in a very one-dimensional way yes. You know, he was not You know, like a certain person Nowadays who's quite popular Speaking about Du Bois said that In the 1930s He was a nationalist, he became a communist Later in the 50s But when you read his writings from the 30s Well, first he's already gone to the Soviet Union And he's writing about it in the 20s and 30s And then you look at Dark Princess You look at other stuff you see a person who is influenced by communism and is says he's a Bolshevik, and a person who's deeply concerned about Black folks in America and is against the color line for self-determination. So, and for self determination. So, and talk about civilization in Asia. So you have, you it's it's a lot there. It's difficult to capture all of that or describe it in a few words, or or also to fit him. I think in a one of these preordained uh, boxes, academic boxes. Like you can't say, oh. He's fits in the box of existentialism, which is basically European existentialism. You can't fit him into Marxism, which if you just consider that to be European Marxism, you can't fit him into nationalism. If you just consider that to be this narrow kind of nationalism, you know, it's uh, he's checks a lot of boxes.
2: Because he's already talking about India. Right, right. right. You know what I'm saying? Or, or the uh, the Indian subcontinent. I mean, you know, you know, Du Bois is not easy to master. A lot of, you know, and this is why, you know, I'm, I prefer that discussions on Du Bois uh, limit um, how much academics have to say. First of all, modern day academics are uh, conditioned by the fact that they're they're seeking to get a permanent job. So it's not Du Bois that is motivating them. It is the job market. Mm -hmm. And uh, so so I think they they cannot understand Du Bois. The other thing is, you know, uh, it takes some time. It takes some time. And you know, like like you were talking today, Joe, about when he went to China, he gave delivered a paper on Benjamin Franklin. I mean, well, some of this throws a curveball in most people's understanding of Du Bois. If you put him in, well, in the '30s he was a black nationalist. Well, in the late '50s, what was he a Benjamin Franklinite? You know, <laughs> how do you, you know, how do you put all of this together? Um, this huge package, this huge presence in the intellectual life. And I always ask the question what does it say about a Black intelligentsia that has more problems with Du Bois uh, than they do with a multitude of le- lesser thinkers? Mm-hmm. What does that say about, you know, a lot of this writing on Du Bois says more about the writer than it does about Du Bois. And that's, you know, that's where David Levering Lewis, the biographer, completely falls down and exposes who he is. Said His, his um, assessment of Russia and America said more about David Levering Lewis than it did about Du Bois. You know, and I'm I question whether he even read the piece. So that's what you know. I hear you, Joe. I I just um, people, working people, ordinary people have a greater capacity to understand Du Bois than these academics, mm-hmm. because the ordinary person, the working person, is seeking knowledge and truth and a way out of the crisis. The academic. Is, is seeking a way to get tenure, to quote, get published. And we know what that's about, yeah.
0: Uh, Don clarifies, he was referring to evolution totally, including Hegel. Is, yeah, yeah.
2: Uh, almost we're dealing with a higher level of synthesis, mm-hmm. a more complex level of synthesis. It's like going from Newtonian um, physics uh, to quantum mechanics and beyond mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. something far less predictable mm-hmm. uh, and that it requires, you know, it requires, and I, I'd say this, Don, reading Du Bois requires an honesty and genuineness on the part of the reader. Uh, and, and that's, I know when I talked to Michelle about this, you know, the art, You just feel at, you feel humbled, but you also feel uplifted by Du Bois's writing. I've never experienced such with any other writer to be honest about it.
0: Uh, Nabila also writes, I went to his museum in Ghana. Are there any copies of the work that he started while in Ghana? Wasn't it an encyclopedia?
2: Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I think I've seen the outline hmm. that, he, that he began working from.
0: Hmm. Right, uh, Vincent Kelly writes, I went to the same college as Harry Hopkins in the Midwest. And it's interesting how little his name came up during my time there. Instead, Robert Noyce, the founder of Intel Corporation is the famous alumni most often mentioned. Even the educational institutions that helped produce these figures then have moved on and failed to imbue their students with a sense of connection to the legacies of people like Hopkins. Interesting. We could also talk about you know, Du Bois, how little he's celebrated by the in- institutions he studied at or worked at. Um, Ailus Klein writes, you don't owe anyone anything is the slogan of the young elite, whether it's your parents or your countrymen or your children. Misguided in the pursuit of freedom, this sentiment isn't making anyone more free, not even those acting on it. Uh, Emil Palmier writes, I think this notion to flee America and the problems of American society remind me of the insular trend of identity politics. The idea of a freedom from one's responsibility towards their own government seems very similar to the rejection of the international nature of all our human conflicts.
3: That's a good way. Yeah, definitely.
0: Yeah. No, I, I definitely think there are parallels. I mean, they, you know, because a lot of revolutionaries they talk about freedom and responsibility going together. Mm-hmm. You know, that's really the meaning of freedom when everybody takes responsibility for each other and for right. humanity, and is free to, to pursue that in the best ways. Um, but this one, one dimensional uh, idea of freedom, which this is kind of the motto of this cosmopolitan managerial class and the thing spread by the, by the current liberal elite and so on, it is very damaging and it makes it much easier to control people when they're kind of drugged ideologically, you could say by this.
2: Well, you know, I often talk about three types of freedom, freedom in society, freedom from society and freedom to change society, you know? Um, and each has moral consequences. Um, freedom in society might, might mean, uh, in, well, the individual freedom mm-hmm. to make money and to live well in a society where everybody's doing bad freedom from society is to withdraw from the whole thing and find your own place and freedom to change society. I think is the only real moral choice in the face of injustice and such.
0: Mm -hmm. Definitely, I mean, we discussed in the year of Gandhi about how Gandhi's formulation of freedom, he wrote about how rights always are coupled with duties you cannot separate the two in order to build a free society everyone has to exercise their rights and their duties yeah. if you read the interestingly if you read the constitution of the people's republic of china there's a whole section which is called the rights and duties of the people and it outlines the rights of the people and the duties of the people and they're also supposed to go together and uh you can't i think it's very difficult to build a moral society without without that uh, being at the heart of it. This kind of one dimensional freedom just brings about the freedom to exploit. Mm -hmm.
2: The other thing is I think that constitution of the Chinese People's Republic is an acknowledgement of their having gone to the state of the whole people. Mm -hmm. Because see our constitution is predicated upon the idea that, the individual must be protected from the state, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, And the Chinese constitution is based, is predicated upon the idea that the people are the state. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Very
0: interesting because in uh, the kind of academia here, they're framing that as a very sinister thing. Like they're saying, oh, the people and the state are one, are fused. So that was what will lead to authoritarianism and exploitation. Why is this the opposite? When you separate the people from the state, then the state basically is used by a, a small elite. And that small elite themselves are protected from, like like Du Bois was describing actually here about how the Supreme Court stepped in and tried to, to end different progressive parts of the New Deal. Yes. Because oh, it's unconstitutional. The rights of property are protected from the state. Because that was put there, I mean, as a... By a conservative wing who wrote the constitution that wanted to protect property from the state in the in the event that the state would ever be taken over by the people uh you know what they called mobocracy uh so that's you know it's a very important distinction i mean and that's what we're coming up against again now with the, this, uh this current political crisis here, and we do have to look to this model of the state of the of the
2: whole people you know it's like um like the panthers uh major slogan was all power to the people
3: mm-hmm.
2: you know and whether they could implement it or whether it could be realized at that time it remains a, 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 a slogan that's at the pinnacle of the fight for democracy mm-hmm. and and more than anything i guess i would say that the black panther party was a was an advanced detachment Of the fight for democracy, Mm -hmm. all power to the people, Mm -hmm. you know, which thus transforms the state uh, from an enemy of the people to the people themselves.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, didn't they hold a revolutionary people's constitutional convention?
2: Here in Philadelphia at Temple and the Church of the Advocate.
0: So there was a time when
2: this was seriously uh, political agenda. Absolutely. And I agree with you. I mean, without this type of knowledge, without this type of discussion, what are people left with? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're 25 years old and you've never heard a discussion like this, mm-hmm. how do you think? What do you do? You know, what is what is your psychological state? Mm-hmm. you've never heard a discussion like this Mm -hmm,
3: mm -hmm.
2: yeah and even
0: uh even fdr talked about the second bill of rights uh last year in office right right to employment farmers right to income freedom from unfair competition and monopolies housing medical care social security and education these are so it's just important in terms of just doing this history because it lets you know that there's a possibility of this being taken seriously in the US in the US political discourse. Something people yeah. would actually fight for. Yes. Not, you know, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and that the best you get is a $1,400 check. You gotta struggle for that. That means revolution if you get that check.
2: Look, Or as, uh, as my friend John Jeter calls them, Jolton John and Cam Cam. <laughs> <laughs> so, he's crazy! Cam, Cam!
0: <laughs> <laughs> to dare to dream, you know? Dare to think, they
2: yeah, 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 yeah. But you do see the ideological and intellectual weakness of the uh, American population at this time. Mm-hmm. And how these movements, and this is all these air quotes all the time, these movements are controlled by and um, uh, lean towards the petty bourgeoisie. Mm -hmm. The ranks from which, the class from which this um, uh, super managerial bureaucratic elite comes from. Uh, And even though, you you get a lot of young people who protest in the end, most of them do not want to change the system. Uh, they want to become a part of defending the system because they don't have an, an intellectual or ideological alternative.
0: Right, absolutely. And then this whole NGO system, I mean, one of the primary tasks is to take out ideas and ideology from any kind of politics or as you were saying, movement, strategy, Uh, So then it makes it very easy to just slide people into the managerial class
2: from Easy. And um,
1: one of the, well, I guess one of the main direct comparisons that we've already talked about was... um, like, how does the New Deal that Du Bois describes compare to the Green New Deal of today? Okay. And I mean, I was like, you know, like even in terms of the jobs, like I was looking into this, um, like just now in terms of like, you know, Biden says he's going to create like 10,000 new jobs or whatever. He's going to create like tens of thousands of new jobs. And I think I'd, sign- I'd seen in the news recently that I forget which labor leader it was, but someone was like, Biden, where are like the jobs that you promised in like the green infrastructure? Like we don't see these jobs. And also like when you actually look at, like if, you know, if uh, the US is investing in like solar and wind, right? Those, the jobs that are happening there will not be in the same places that, um, you know, there's the loss of jobs and coal and mining and um, these other, like more conventional or traditional energy industries and so like even if like there's cr- they're creating jobs like it won't do anything to actually help the people who are losing jobs due to the you know the energy transition or the green new deal or, um, or like fourth industrial revolution and so i think yeah that's one of the also like the main questions that has to be dealt with and um yeah it's um something that's just completely absent from how people you know I feel like progressives today see this question of like the environment and g- the green new deal and it's more just like oh like obviously like you know like they have a plan you know Biden was always saying in the the in the um like the debates and stuff he's like I have a plan all this stuff whether it's about COVID or about um, the green new deal and like when you actually look at the plan it's like not actually something that even helps people or yeah I mean like I think this article that I'm looking at, it's saying that, you know, coal, oil, coal, oil and gas workers can make as much as 80,000 to $100,000 per year, whereas the average uh, solar energy job or wind energy job is like 45,000. So it's like literally like slicing the wages or the salaries of like workers in half. And it's like, are these the jobs like, is this really like the kind of New Deal, even that? Yeah, the FDR. Um, would have envisioned um, or is it actually something that's in reality much worse and is um, yeah like much worse for the average American worker um, or not benefiting them at all
3: yeah I was just so struck I mean also throughout the chapter about Du Bois's emphasis on sociology and just like that completeness of knowledge okay what are the jobs how many jobs who are you feeding what is needed and then from there making a rational plan uh, evaluation of what needs to be done, taking into account all of the human complexity and just how through all these academic institutions that knowledge and those methodologies have been wiped out. I mean you don't know how to study society anymore. You only know how to study things as narrowly as possible so you can publish something to shift that you know consensus maybe point one direction. Mm-hmm. This way. I mean, it's just like it's just what are we studying anymore? What, what about the big questions of life and society and humanity? And those are connected to the what's concrete. Um, but knowledge is just so fragmented and useless, utterly useless to anybody. Um, and so then you have this green New Deal masquerading as you know, some kind of plan when it's, it has no idea. It has, they haven't even talked to unions. They haven't even talked to working people like that man, Brendan, I think his name was the, of the Boilers Makers Union. Yeah, 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 the way that he comes bad. about AOC, well, we mm-hmm. literally lipstick. yeah, we make the fuel for you to turn on your, you know, bathroom and put on lipstick <laughs> <laughs>
2: or something like that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, um, on the question of planning, you know, it's not just to have a plan, yeah. it's to plan to make Is planning to make the plan realizable. And, you know, uh, the Soviet Union started in 1928 with five year plans. Now China is talking about 20 year plans. And uh, I was talking to Raju and last week, and I was very uh, surprised to hear that while China is going to a 20 year plan, India is going. To a one year plan. So, you know, you know how I think. I said, What are they on dope? I mean, to have a one year plan is to defeat the point of a plan.
3: Yeah.
2: A one <laughs> <year> plan. <laughs> I mean, you're at the level of Joe Biden in that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but the Green New Deal has nothing in common with the New Deal. Because the Green New Deal is to further concentrate power in fewer and fewer hands. It is a part of the dictatorship of the, of a smaller and smaller elite. The New Deal, as Du Bois describes it, was power from below. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think Corey Morningstar has it right. There's a lot to suspect about the Green New Deal. Uh, and I'm more interested in the ecologists in China and India and other places. Uh, There's something very suspicious about the Green New Deal.
0: Yeah, the point about above and below is very important because I mean, as Cory Morningstar and others have shown this Green New Deal being so manufactured from above, these organizations being created, people being paid to go and protest and all kinds of stuff but if you compare that to the new deal which was really a kind of a populist program i mean despite its limitations i mean it was like millions of people going out there voting joining the uh, political party joining labor unions building them up going on strike pushing the government to go further it was it was very different that would involve wide swaths of people masses of people and this is like you know (laughs) This just, just putting out a few people from this
2: caricature names. of the New Deal,
4: right, right.
0: But I mean, it shows the weakness of understanding of history that people. prove
2: that, that. Yeah, <laughs> you know,
0: people can use that true. Just like I mean, we won't have to get into it, but many terms have been used. Many organizations' names have been. They've attempted to revive. You know, a certain. You know, people have a weakness of not just understanding FDR, but understanding Martin Luther King, and so much is being done, has been done in his name wrongly um alice klein writes i've been thinking a lot about how people get so excited over the banning of fracking in new york state meanwhile the number one energy source consumed domestically is natural gas and so much of rural western new york is depressed and unemployed that's an interesting point i mean i think like some of the statistics jeremiah was saying like a lot of these places even in pennsylvania elsewhere like I think it's a serious question we have to take into consideration i mean it's not just about the environment and bust or what certain experts say about the environment or nothing i mean you do have to take this into account about how it affects the working people you know in all these industries Mm -hmm.
3: uh well it also goes back to the old critique by like indira gandhi of the environmental movement how dare you tell us not to develop You know, I mean, we put the human beings first. We believe in our people. Poverty is an environmental issue. Absolutely. And They've made it narrow by talking about like, and I mean, they like, you know, New York times will cover some story about environmental racism, but it's the same thing (laughs) of, you know, taking race away from class. I mean, what is happening to people as workers and just how, who are you sitting so comfortably to, you know, pretend like you care about the environment?
0: yeah, they never talk about the uh, environmental impact of militarism. Absolutely. I mean, the U.S. military is the world's biggest polluter. I mean, it's insane, actually. We we don't even know how much pollution these weapons and so in, in addition to the human destruction, but the way they destroy the soil of countries like Iraq and Afghanistan, the chemicals released, even if you go to different places, in the oceans and the seas like even from world war ii they still have all the wreckage the oil the cannonball all the artillery stuff all still there but i mean uh so that's not talked about in the the green new deal as far as i'm aware Re- reducing the size of the military the power of the pentagon uh all of all of that stuff
2: well you know i think uh, you know everybody knows michael moore the documentary filmmaker I think that he's been canceled because yeah. you don't hear his, you don't hear much about him these days. Uh, after he came yeah. out with a uh, a documentary film called Planet of the Humans, which you can get on um, on YouTube for free, and where he where he literally said that the uh, Green New Deal is a profit making. Mm scheme for big corporations who want to sell electric cars and windmills and other things and there's no guarantee in fact um it it suggests that more people will be impoverished and unemployed as a consequence Hmm. yeah
1: i also remember seeing um I think Vladimir Putin at some like international conference, I think that Greta Thunberg also attended and was like shouting at people. He was like, yeah, similar to Indira Gandhi. He's like, are you going to tell these countries in Asia and Africa not to develop? Like, are you going to tell them to remain in poverty just because it's like, you know, reducing carbon emissions or something? And yeah, I don't know. I feel like he got, yeah, Putin was really uh, attacked Um, in the same way that actually Trump was attacked for criticizing Greta Thunberg. but yeah, at the root of it is something that is actually, yeah, like genuine um, and can't just be sort of reduced to these, yeah, sort of like the sloganeering or the, the theatrics that someone like Greta Thunberg um, represents.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Right, right, right. Um, well, that's it for the comments right now. <laughs> i reaching one thirty, so your final-
2: Go eat lunch.
0: Yeah, I think we're heading towards that time, but let's Emily, Michelle, I think you'd like to say before we wrap up.
4: Just some few things. I think I really, a lot to think about from this discussion. Like, I think after this free school, talking about the Green New Deal, FDR, DuBois, sociology, I think all of that, like coming together, it's, yeah. I mean, at the root of it is like this human struggle for democracy, for freedom, like uncover everyone's potential. And I think, I think that's something that's really illustrated really beautifully in Du Bois here. Like he starts out personally, but then he goes into like this in depth history, this sociology, and also this understanding that at the root of it is like being able to really like figure out like, what is a society meant for the people, meant for the masses of humanity, not just meant for the ruling class. And what are the potentials in history, what are the contradictions, but also like what does that mean for us today and like what sorts of questions does this history task us with figuring out now. I mean I can't completely like capture everything like just this the immensity of his work but I think like just today like knowing that I mean it's important for us to be able to study Du Bois because he is such a like eminent thinker for today like he is a thinker for the present for how to figure out our own like moment today. So yeah, I mean, I was just very, yeah, I mean, very moved that we got a chance to read this chapter together.
6: Yeah, I think last thing for me is also just, I know it's a small point, but Du Bois' humility and when he was describing his journey, like going to Harvard and getting a fellowship, he says, He says my experience the fact that i am you know i've gotten certain degrees and like i'm known known to a certain degree is not exception it's exceptional not characteristic of america and talking about planning in some ways he's basically saying that's the that's the human importance of planning um, or a planned economy where like he says he's like i was only given these fellowships, I was allowed to go to Harvard because of certain chances. Um, So I was so lucky. And otherwise I would have been lying in the ground in a grave just like thousands of other young black men who had just as equal of gifts as me. Mm. Um, And so just his humility too, and how the way he tells the story of himself is not really about himself. Um, And I think it just brings it back to what you were saying earlier, Doc, about the human being. And like, even when we talk about planning at, at its, ultimately at its root, it's about the human being and yeah, I, you know, the first time I read this chapter, I actually didn't like it that much, but reading it with the free school, I feel like it just makes the chapter so much mm-hmm. better and feels so important and relevant. Um, and I'm really, you know, I didn't think I would say this, but I'm pretty excited to read the rest of the chapter about FDR. <laughs>
0: right, right. All right. well, Michelle, uh, as the reader, any final message or preview for next
1: week?
5: I don't have much else to add. I mean, I think, I think, like you guys have already said, it's, it's been incredibly humbling and uplifting to, to read Du Bois together. And like Emily that formulation that you gave really struck me doc especially given how long and how prolifically you've studied and been in struggle but you said that um, reading Du Bois is so singular you know it requires a level of honesty and um, genuine openness on behalf of the reader but if you are able to bring that then um, you also see so much um, you feel so uplifted you know while remaining humble it's it's, yeah, I, I mean, I really feel that just through what we've been reading together. And um, it's it's been a lot to connect, but I'm looking forward to how we continue to fill in the pieces.
0: All right, great. Well, thanks everyone for joining us on live. Can
2: I just make one announcement? I think uh, I think next week we're going to celebrate Du Bois' 153rd birthday. So we're gonna have a special kind of uh, uh, event mm-hmm. I don't know that we'll be reading the rest of this chapter then but I think it's going to be very very uplifting mm-hmm. what we're going to do
0: well, I'm, I'm actually glad I'm glad you made that announcement that's important yeah and uh we're very excited for it just to give one preview of something which will be kind of premiering to the world on uh this uh birthday of Du Bois's is a translation of a obituary written about Du Bois by a prominent Chinese writer in, was it in People's Daily? Chinese newspaper? (laughs) Uh, So we're looking forward to, uh, Michelle will be reading that. And uh, so you should all join us next week to uncover this bit of history, which nobody has really delved into. And
2: and I'd like to ask uh, Johan, you and Meghna, do we have um, Nehru's uh, uh, message on the death of Du Bois. We'll have to look we'll have into to that. Look, we'll yeah. have to look into yeah. that, yeah. yeah.
0: And I was also thinking we would play or read something from ES Ready about yes, uh, true. Du Bois. So we'll definitely have all these tributes. Yeah. We'll dig them up as best as we can and uh, excited to share it with everyone next week. Good. But uh, thanks for joining us. And Happy
6: Lunar New Year
2: happy new, new year. Happy year happy new year to everyone and to beverly lomax who wish me a happy chinese new year on thursday all right and we'll
0: see everyone then next week tribute will be same day same time okay.